Welcome to North of the Shire, your podcast on all things Lord of the Rings. Although we talk about anything to do with Lord of the Rings, it's primarily about the Middle Earth strategy battle game by Games Workshop. I'm your host, Don, and this is episode 30. Today we are back to our standard lineup, so I'm here with my regular, trusty co-host, Mr. Andrew Brock. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Back to the Excellent. usual, you know, instead of I'm talking yeah. to Chris and you're talking to Garrett. Not that those weren't bad things. Those are fantastic things. Yeah, Is that was the, different. It was different, yeah. Because I had to do the intro when, when Chris and I were doing it. And I'm just I like, know. oh, this is easy. And I'm like, no, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I enjoyed I did a little bit of a shake-up of the format, so yeah. uh, curious to know how people like that. It was good to get those two guys into the episode, too. That's true, yeah. I, I know I got yeah. at least two comments on, on how it went, and that was from both you and Garrett, <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. so I'm good. <laughs> a lot of feedback from uh, within the podcast itself. That's right, yes. that's right. <laughs> Unbiased feedback. <laughs> yeah, um, actually, just this is episode 30, so just talking about the podcast for a second. Um, we do talk about all aspects of the game, including the competitive side, narrative stuff, mm-hmm. the hobby side. You know, it's all fair game. You never really know exactly what you're going to get. That's, that's kind of what we go for mm-hmm. all over the place with it. Um. Let me just go through our usual what we're going to talk about. And we're back to the standard stuff here this episode. So we're going to do a catch up. Um, We're going to talk about our main topic for this episode, which is, Andrew. Ah, it's raining over Lords of Battle. Where I'm right on. Well, that's the the episode title, but the actual thing is a a bit of a deep dive into Lords of Battle, the mission. Yeah. Um, We're going to do our. All that is gold does not glitter. And then what have I got in my pocket? More like what quote has Don got in his pocket <laughs> that I have to guess at? <laughs> I got a new I got a new twist to throw at oh you in today's God. today's segment. Trying trying to entice you to go for something other than the hard quotes. It's gonna we'll see the, if it works. It's going to give we'll me the hard works. quote and then the ultra hard quote. And I'll be like, well, ultra hard, let's do it. <laughs> well, you keep going for the hard one and getting it wrong. So, you know, it's like hey, maybe we'll try something different here. You know, I'm like I'm like that guy that's just like betting it all on, on black. And he's just like, no, I'm going to do it again. Then I got to get my money back. <laughs> it's like double or nothing, double or nothing. Exactly. Um, any hobbying going on? Well, uh, it just so happened that we... Um, what was I doing? I was with someone. We were, I think, we were doing some kind of event. Um, mm-hmm. right? it was the like some sort of terraforming Mars game or something like that. I don't recall. Oh, that was it. We were doing a meeting among uh, uh, individuals online. I thought, you know what? For an hour that was in this meeting, I want to pull up my models and start painting them again. And so I got oh, cracking okay, okay, on cool. some more models and uh, <clears throat> slapped a couple more coats of paint on some stuff. And uh, slowly but surely, my Rangers of Athelion are getting done. You can say it. It was our meeting we had with the admin of the Ontario Strategy Battle Game League. That's right. I was trying to keep it all hush-hush. Right? I don't know why, but, you know. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, we're yeah. both on the admin. That's so. it. How about you? Uh, you so that's good. Done? So you didn't. Um, I have been actually, uh, like I've been in a, one of my typical painting funks, like mm. just not interested in painting right now. Right. And plus it's like, it's 
for me, like I, I can't prime my models inside the house mm -hmm. because my my wife has a like a very sensitive nose. So if she comes mm -hmm. into the house and I've been spraying the you know the rattle can <laughs> primer on my models, she'll be like, "What's that smell? Have you been using spray paint in here?" <laughs> so I tend to try to do it outside, and it's mm -hmm. been bloody freezing here mm -hmm. uh, lately. So. What I decided to do is that we have this new challenge going on. So I've kind of identified mm -hmm. a whole bunch of models that I want to try to get done. And, you know, for the last few weeks and probably the next few weeks, I'm going to do all of my assembly of models for the whole year. Oh, wow. Um, okay, so yeah, yeah. I've the last two Saturdays, I've just basically plunked myself at the kitchen table for a few hours and just been mm -hmm. assembling models. So here's what I've got done so far. Okay. Uh, King Brand and Bard the Second of Dale. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently working on nine Knights of Dale. Oh, okay. Having a little trouble with those, honestly. Can't figure out which shield goes on which guy, but I'll get there. Um, I've put together my two Gundabad Warbats. Mm -hmm. I also had the blister of... Holdfoot Brace Girdle and Robin Smallborough, so oh. put them together. Mm -hmm. uh, Goroth, Captain of the Moranin. He's the guy with like the big baseball bat kind of deal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, yeah. can and sacrifice then, uh, dudes beside one and two plus to save his life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Zagdush or Captain, he comes in the same blister. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Grishnak or Captain and Snaga. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I actually finished putting together my Black Orc Blood Bowl team, oh, okay. ready to prime. Mm -hmm. And also the first 40K model that I have bought in probably 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and to be fair, I bought them because I want to use them in Stargrave. Mm -hmm. And it's Keller Morph Gene Stealer Cultist. Really cool plastic kit with a guy who's like got three six shooters because he's got an extra arm, right? Because he's a Gene nice, Stealer nice. Cultist. Yeah, yeah so yeah. That, that's the start of your Gene Stealer armor right there. Yeah, it could be. Who knows? I we, doubt it. We but. both know it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's highly unlikely. Yeah, so I've got that done. I've mm -hmm. still got more stuff to more stuff to assemble yet after that, after I'm finished those Dale. Knights of Dale too, so mm. I will have a huge pile ready to prime awesome. as soon as the as soon as the temperature gets up above freezing. <laughs> you know the hilarious <laughs> thing is, I haven't sprayed primer on a model in I want to say like five years. Really? I, I've painted all of my models priming. I prime them with with br uh, brush on primer. Every one of them. No way. Yeah, because well, you live in a condo, right? There's like, you can't spray it in the, the corridors. You can't yeah. spray it in your home because the, the fumes are insane. You can't spray yeah. it in uh, on the balcony because there's no airflow in there. So you're literally much just mm -hmm. hotboxing yourself with death fumes. Um, <laughs> and so you literally look like a fool standing in the parking lot spraying bottles. <laughs> yeah. The, the funny thing is, is like for me, I th actually thought of this and I should seriously do this is because I like I work in a manufacturing plant mm -hmm. uh, while I work in the office of it. And we have like two huge paint booths that are temperature controlled so i could mm. just like bring a tray of models and hey guys i'm just gonna spray these here while you're <laughs> spraying all this other stuff in here just don't um, mind them yeah i could mm. totally get away with that if i wanted but yeah we'll see maybe i'll maybe i'll you know, give it a try <laughs> you know the the more um 
I like to think of the, the more like realistic approach would be to put some insulation uh-huh. in your shed and then put a heater in there with some extension cord. Well, I do. Like once it once it gets to like a reasonably freezing cold temperature, mm-hmm. like around zero or just above that, like mm-hmm. I usually I'll bring out like a, a space heater mm-hmm. and I'll have that running while I I prime and it, it usually works out fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this many models, it's like, I'm not going to take a chance that I'm going to like screw something up. <laughs> yeah. You don't want it to like no. crackle or whatever. And you have to tell yeah. And it's them. like a lot of it is forge world stuff. So it's like, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not risking it on that. No yeah. old paint or, you know, mm-hmm. wonky temperatures or whatever. Yeah, because anyway. also with the Forge World stuff, you have, because they don't get rid of that mold release, so you have to, like, scrub it off with some, like, hot water and some so- um, soap. Did that. Yeah. Did that. Yeah. And, my like, I have a toothbrush that I use for that, like, in some, oh. you know, some washing up liquid and whatever, so. Washing up liquid. Uh, oh, my God. Ages. Dish that, soap. Dish Sorry. soap. There you go. Washing up liquid yeah. is an old term. I have heard it in, like, many of the older uh, YouTube videos. Yes. Um, one thing I also got, I said I bought a 40K model. I also mm-hmm. bought White Dwarf 471. Oh, okay. After um, Out of the Frying Pan um, talked about it and said how like it had a, a decent amount of Lord of the Ring content in that issue. So I was waiting and waiting for that to be released over mm-hmm. here. And I finally picked up that issue and yeah sure enough there was there was a fair amount of uh, Lord of the Ring stuff in there so mm-hmm. it was it was a good good read and um, huge props to Dan from Out of the Frying Pan mm-hmm. for getting a whole bunch of his models in that white dwarf which were amazing looking mm-hmm. so props for that nice um, I can couldn't even imagine because I'm nowhere near good enough of a painter to be in that uh, in that boat. Every time I look at my models and think I could do that, and then I look at their models, I'm like, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> One, I need to understand color theory first. That's the yeah, challenge. Yeah. Uh, there was actually. Oh, go ahead. No, I was, gonna, I was gonna say just as a quick aside. Um, one of my late Christmas gifts was the Atlas of Middle Earth. Right, you mentioned that in our oh man, that is such an amazing book because it walks you through essentially the history of Middle Earth, all the things you you, you've read about before, right? Either you've read Mm -hmm. it in one of the books, it's sort of been compiled and put into this book in in a very beautiful chronological uh, timeline. But they always provide you with a map of where everything is happening, so you can sort of get a visual representation of where stuff is actually going on. So you can put it like a, a, a map to to events. That's like for me very important because I have a very visual memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so associating things to like a ge- geographic location or just see that kind of a map or whatever, it really helps me remember things. And the funny thing was, you were telling us about it in our little chat group, and lo and behold, aren't I like going through a whole bunch of piles of things and baskets full of books and whatever? And it's like, oh, here it is. I have this. Literally, the Atlas <laughs> of Earth. I have it actually. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! I think I actually received it as a gift a year or two ago, I think and I'd so, forgotten yeah. about it. So I had now have it closer to the top of the pile. There you go. It's a good read to go through. Goes take goes all the way from the first stage from the beginning to the right to the fourth age. Right on. I yeah. look forward to uh, going through that because I've been 
trying to update my lore knowledge a little bit, especially mm-hmm. because of one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Um, been watching some YouTube videos on uh, Second Age stuff. Also mm-hmm. trying to get more familiar with Second Age stuff because of the the TV show coming out later Similar this year. Yeah, yeah. I wanna I wanna have a, a decent sort of knowledge of of events that went down and when and by who. So I am ready for the show. Well, it's it's from what I can tell with my limited second edition, second age uh, lore is that uh, I think it's based on the Rings of Power. So I would assume it's based on the corruption mm-hmm. of Celebrimbor, who is the maker of pretty much the Elven Rings and all the other rings um, uh, by Sauron and his creation of the, the Master Ring. Could very well be. Um, I think. Uh, I think that the TV show will have to be many faceted, but I imagine yes. that would definitely be one of the story arcs. But mm-hmm. there's a lo- there's a lot going on in the Second Age, so there's a lot to choose from there for sure. And, and I will say, as an evil player, I'm excited because orcs are good in the Second Age. They are. They are atrocious in the third age, and they die in droves. But in the second age, they kick so much elvish butt, it wasn't even funny. Yeah, they do, but they also get their own butts kicked, so... Oh, you have to, right? Good has to triumph over evil, so... Right on, right on. Well, what should we move on to our, uh, our main topic? I think so. Let's do it. Here we are with Let's Talk About, and our main topic for today is a mission uh, that we probably already introduced in the intro segment, but we're going to talk about Lords of Battle. That's right, one of the original six, and probably one of my favorite missions, mostly because I'm running Linebreaker, but you know, hey, to each their own. Don, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's get into this. Let me just uh, read the uh, mission overview i guess so mm-hmm. uh deployment i'll just kind of summarize deployment is up to 24 inches onto the table so it's one of those in your face type deployments uh and its uh end condition or i guess objectives is once one force has been broken the game might suddenly end on the roll of a one or a two the game ends okay so mm-hmm. the vps i'm gonna read this verbatim because it's obviously the most important part almost in every case Mm -hmm. Uh, scoring victory points for this scenario you need to keep track of your wound tally your wound tally is equal to the number of wounds that your army inflicted upon your opponent's army plus any fate points that your opponent spent hero models that are removed from the game with unspent fate points will add one to the wound tally for each one unspent models that flee because their force is broken count towards the wound tally but mounts that flee do not you score three victory points if your wound tally is greater than your opponents if your wound tally is at least twice as large as your opponents then you instead score five victory points if your wound tally is at least three times larger as your opponents or your opponent has no models left on the board 
then you instead score seven victory points. You score one victory point for causing one or more wounds to the enemy leader. Wounds prevented by successful fate roll do not count. If you kill the enemy leader, you instead score two VPs. You score one VP if the enemy force is broken at the end of the game. If the enemy force is broken and your force is unbroken, you instead score three. So that's the victory points. And then there is a special rule here to finish this off. Mm -hmm. And it is a time of heroes. Each time your force kills an enemy hero in a fight, one of your hero models in the same fight, your choice, regains a point of might lost earlier in the battle. And that's the mission outline, essentially. Wow. I mean, there's some key things to take away from here. I mean, one, 24-inch deployment zone. That means it's going to be a a struggle for some armies that want to get distance, right, and shoot like leaf bar. The other piece is, and I think this one that, that, that... that may for, people might forget about is that mounts need to die so you get VPs from them. Running exactly. away doesn't count. Right. Um, and then the third one here is, and this is one that people forget about, is that um, pretty much tabling your opponent, tabling is um, an expression we brought over from 40k, but tabling your opponent is essentially wiping them out. Tabling them actually nets you an automatic seven VPs, right? So yeah, that's we're gonna, a very important consideration. Yeah, that's we call it the nuclear option. If everything else fails and you know you're going to lose, go for the table. Um, and that's an extremely hard thing to do. But because this end this game ends after a break has been determined on a roll of a one or two, right? So yeah. you, at the end of the turn, that which someone's been declared broken, you roll in on a one or two, the game ends. And let me tell you, I've seen a lot of games go five or six turns after the break. Oh yeah. So happens all the time. But anyway, yeah. uh, as usual, you've got like a lovely, lengthy, um, you know, what do you call this? Uh, notes on, on on this for us to follow. But but this is what happens when you give this to me like a week in advance instead of a day in advance. <laughs> I've added a lot to this. So I, I've got kind of a, a, like a preamble um, mm-hmm. before you get into your uh, ranking. Um, so, so let me read my, my preamble for this, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I like this, and you already sort of mentioned this. I like this mission because it's, I consider this to be a general's mission. Mm-hmm. That being, you have to fight to win this mission. You can't win by running units off the table or picking up an artifact or by holding objectives. You have to best your opponent in combat. So this is your chance to pull out all your best tactical cliches and put them to work. Hammer and anvil, divide and conquer, envelopment, or my new favorite, the strategy of the central position. Mm. Reading a lot of Napoleon right now, so that's, okay, that's okay. a new one for me. So, so there you go. Um, Essentially, in this mission, you want to find a combat advantage that you have over your opponent's army and then exploit it as much as you can. That could be shooting, cavalry, magic, or whatever it might be. Could be Mm -hmm. anything. I think it has to be said that heroes are very strong in this mission. The special rule they get says it all. It's a time of heroes. 
it's pretty apparent when you take a look at the point values of the models. For example, let's say a typical hero of 100 points has two wounds and two fate. So that mm -hmm. hero is worth a potential four victory points to your opponent. On the flip side, 100 points of warriors is worth three times as many points on average because heroes you know or warriors could be anywhere from between five and 15 points so say 10 mm -hmm. on average so 10 points so a hero that can move in and out of combat uh, and range around the board attacking where the opponent is vulnerable is an optimal unit in the game same can be said for a really good archer hero they can pick up a lot of victory points and only give up one or two if they lose a couple of points of fate or a wound. Mm -hmm. Normally this type of advantage is measured in point value, i.e. my 100 points killed 150 points of your army, therefore in its advantage to me. In this mission, that is still true, but it's also reflected in victory points. So this is a direct corollary to winning and not just an indirect advantage as in most other missions. This is where the offensive power of a mounted hero can really pay dividends in victory points. They are capable of running away with the game as they rack up VPs with every kill. However, the concern with this mission is that even if you are ahead on VPs, you can't force the game to end. The best you can do is to force a break and then hope to roll a one or a two at the, to end the game. Games can still go on and on under these conditions and it's possible for your opponent to claw their way back into the game. Anyway, so that's my preamble. So I'll let you run through your, your rankings. Mm -hmm. And um, just as a reminder, so um, the way Andrew likes to do this is he ranks each of our army types uh, one through five. And it's like they could all be a two, for example. Was, there's mm -hmm. not like one in each spot. You know, you could have two ones and two twos and a five or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, he'll rank all of our uh, army types in this mission so go ahead okay uh, well i also want to make an interesting point there as you're, you're talking about um, evaluating um, a model for its point value you mm -hmm. can also look at evaluating a model for its wounds brought to wounds caused ratio right so if you've got mm -hmm. for example um like an, an aragorn king lsr right he's got three wounds and three fate that effectively is six potential yep. uh, points he's giving up um, for the tally. But if he kills 15 models, thus causing, or f causes 15 yeah. wounds, he's bringing like a 50, 15 wounds caused to six brought to the table. You know yeah, I mean? and it's like I tried to point that out at the beginning mm -hmm. with my example, and it's like in terms of the points that you're bringing to the game, there's a huge disparity between the amount of victory points that the warrior models can cough up versus the mm -hmm. hero models. Yeah, no, you're totally right. Um, so yeah, so when, even when looking at your, your heroes uh, and what heroes you're bringing, understanding what your heroes can do in terms of how many wounds they can like generate in terms of the tally uh, is a big big understanding because like if you bring a lot of heroes that don't do don't bring a lot of combat potential to the table, I'm talking like a Kirdan who you wouldn't put in the combat. That's points being spent um, on wounds that are really sort of um, 
a liability to you in a sense that yeah. like it's cured ends like uh, was it two wounds two fate uh, or two wounds one fate and so he's like a three um, VP liability to you because he doesn't actually generate kills right he just, that, that's where I see their value as as it, it becomes now an indirect value rather than mm-hmm. a direct value because it to me it's a direct value if you're able to rack up victory points for your side mm-hmm. and if you're contributing something that makes you defensively stronger and therefore harder for your enemy to get victory points it's Mm -hmm. an indirect uh contribution you're making to your army which is much more difficult to measure it is much more difficult to measure but i find to your point um it can be infinitely infinitely um more valuable to you right if like if oh absolutely yep. yeah so let's move on anyways to the army rankings um and we can okay. dive more into that discussion a little bit later so uh to don's point um i like to rank it one to five one being this is my this is my juicy mission this is the mission i love to see pop up in a, in a tournament or in yep. a game and a five is oh god this sucks um, this is going to be an uphill battle of uphill battles. And a three is eh, <laughs> neither for or against. I, I yeah. can handle this. So a one, like I said before, the best, the person, the army type that loves this mission the most is for me, the line breaker. Like to the death, this mission emphasizes killing your opponent's infantry, right? Because that's where uh, the most wounds are going to be, right? Unlike to the death, this mission rewards you for killing your opponent's infantry with victory points, right? So with to the death, it's I get VPs for breaking you. With this one, it's literally killing each model gets me more VPs effectively. Mm-hmm. So something Linebreaker does exceedingly well is kill models and kill models quick. Okay, this mission is often considered the best mission for the Linebreaker army, just due to how fast they can push up the wounds tally towards killing infantry. All right, and also with this mission, having a smaller model count is actually benefit, right? And as your opponent will struggle to match your kill tally with less opportunities. And, and kind of what I'm referring to here is the Linebreaker army is oftentimes seen as the smallest model count of the army types. Okay, because you're investing so many points in your heroes. And what that means is, you know, if I've got 25 or 30 models, total models, that includes even heroes, right? If I've got 25 or 30 models in, or wounds, I should say, 25 or 30 wounds worth of models um, in my army, and my opponent has, let's say, 45 or 50, well, there comes sort of a threshold point where if I kill more than 30 wounds of my opponent's army, they have no chance of catching up unless they table me. Right. And so that's why uh, model count, but more so wound count disparity is so important in this mission and why the line breaker generally is on the positive side of this sort of wound count disparity. Yeah. For this army, it's essentially taking sort of the advantage that we talked about earlier that heroes have. And you're exploiting that because your your line breaker is built around like numerous mobile heroes, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. One other thing that I would just like to add to your, your line breaker thing, the special rule for this mm-hmm. mission also really helps them, a time of heroes, um, because line breakers, they really excel at killing mid-tier or low-tier heroes. Yep. So there's a lot of uh, free might available there for them. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. Sometimes, like if you find that your some of your linebreaker heroes are running low on might, diving them into a, a mid or low tier opponent oppo- opposing hero, getting that that strike up, killing them will sort of net you um, one, get you those VPs, and sort of give it to you for free might, right? Like because a lot of the times. 
A lot of the times, and we can make topic, talk about this a little bit later, but a lot of the times when your hero charges into an enemy hero and kills them from full to dead, if they're that strong, you often will get three or four wounds effectively, right? Because any fate spent or even fate left on a model counts as a wound, whether it's a successful fate roll or, or, or a failed fate roll, right? And so that all of a sudden means if I go after a two wound, two fate hero on a horse, and my hero I know can kill them from full to dead, especially if I get the trap, um, I could potentially get five wounds out of that um, and also gain a point of might back. Yeah, At which huge. point in time it's like, there's that, and then there's also me charging into two infantry, calling a hero combat, killing them, charging into two more infantry and killing them. All of a sudden there it's like I get four VPs, I've spent a point of might versus I got five Sorry, five, four wounds, and I spent a point of might, versus I went five wounds from killing this mid to low tier hero, and I gave my point of might back. So there's there's a lot of opportunities there. No, absolutely. In the number two slot, so I wouldn't put this up to the line breaker level, but I would say the, this army type enjoys this mission, is the mobile type, okay? And the reason why I put this as sort of a close second is due to how hard this army can hit on the charge. And a lot of the mobile armies I'm talking about here are mounted mobile armies, okay? Those mobile armies that aren't really mounted, um, they probably linger in the three area, okay? So this so it's like an all-mounted army excels at killing infantry, um, either through their mounted heroes or their mounted cav, and also their ability to sort of outflank and swarm the opposing enemy forces, right? So while board control isn't really hyper-relevant like it is in an objective game, um, the ability for this mobile type to sort of surround and encompass another army and attack from the back, the side, and the rear all at once um, is really big, okay? And, you know, the reason why this army type, in my opinion, is not number one like Linebreaker is because its army size is deceiving. And that it can cause an, a mobile army player to become overconfident with its force, you know, to do to how the wound tally rules work with Lords of Battle, horses, wargs, camels can count as a wound, right? If your mm -hmm. opponent starts killing them. Thus, while a mounted um, army, right, a mounted mobile army um, may have 25 models, effect, the effect of wounds there is potentially 50, right? And so their army size can potentially double and um, be a, a disadvantage for them, especially if they overextend themselves by trying to push the break too early. Their opponent can sort of claw themselves back with enough turns to kill enough um, mounted models or mounted horses um, and or mounts of any kind and then start slowly killing the infantry that fell from the horse. What do you think, Don? I'm going to save most of my comments for the end because after you're okay. done your list, I'm going to kind of tell you my my scores are not exactly the same as yours and I'll go okay. over that at the end. All right. Also at number two is combined arms. Okay. Similar to mobile and the line breaker, the combined arms has a smaller army type, which would benefit this mission, right? They're, they're smaller army, um, less models, which means less wounds. Because um, again, more of their points are spent on specialty types of items like siege weapons, like wizards, like big heroes, that kind of thing. It also has strong shooting magic component, which can allow it to rack up kills early while simultaneously limiting their opponent. Think of siege weapons, think of like your Iron Hills twirly whirly, um, think of um, wizards and their ability to cast sorceress blast. These things can rack up kills before, um, before the lines clash, right? 
Furthermore, a single strong hero in this force can go enemy hero hunting and really benefit from that Lords of Battle special rule, like a time of ancients, sort of, which allow them to prolong that killing spree. So um, the army I'm thinking about right off the top of my head, Lake Town, like uh, survivors of Lake Town. You've got Gandalf, you've got Bard, and all of a sudden Bard, who's got his fight six with the, near his, his daughters, um, charges into a transfixed uh, model, a transfixed hero, and Bard will kill it very quickly, right? Especially with the fight six, the free hero combat, Boom, he kills it, gets them, uh, potentially gets a might point back from an earlier heroic combat uh, or earlier heroic strike. And he can just keep churning through uh, models very quickly. So that's why I put combined arms up very high in this, in this mission. So for the number three slot, I have put nobody because I don't think there's an army type that is neither beneficial nor a disadvantage for this uh, mission. I genuinely think that sub-army types, like I talked about with the non-mounted mobile type, probably fall into a three. Um, but I don't think there's a true army type that fits into a third slot. So moving on to number four, the shield wall. And the reason I'm putting the shield wall at number four, because normally I put them at three, is because of several reasons. One, a shield wall, and we're talking a true shield wall, so mass infantry with some elements of shooting and some elements of, of, of cav. For mobility purposes. So a true shield wall tends to lean towards a larger army size and that's kind of a detriment to this game. Okay um, and the shield wall's main counter is relying upon attrition to win the day but if they can't counter their you know, main opponent's hitting power they're gonna find themselves unable to keep up with the kill tell. Now in a lot of other games not having a strong hitting power isn't so detrimental especially when you're playing the objective game. Um, because you can rely upon staying on objectives and sort of outlasting your opponent. But this game really requires you to, to, to hit hard, right? And to keep hitting hard. And so a lot of shield wall armies out there are strength three. Not all of them, but a lot. And therefore their infantry aren't really going to contribute against an opposing defense six army, right? And that's going to be real detrimental to them. And how I talked about that no true army sits at a three, but there are some shield walls that are strength four that have a really strong um, infantry hitting up, uh, power. Like I'm talking Iron Hills, I'm talking Isengard. They could push into a three, right? But generally speaking, a, a shield wall sits at a four for me, okay? Also at a four is the Leaf Blower. That's right. Uh, I, I sadly don't think this is a great mission for them. Uh, yeah, no. Generally because their army size, for a couple reasons here, or actually I guess several reasons. One is their army size. They're considered to be the second largest of the army types. Only the horde is bigger than them. Because again, your leaf blower is all about maxing out your bow limit, right? And that means, in many cases, having a huge army with 33% bow limit, but that 33% bow limit generally is 20-25 shots, right? So you have a huge army size, which means a huge wound potential, okay? Poor defense is the second reason for why they're not good. Leaf blowers tend to have defense four, defense five tops, which means heroes, enemy heroes, and pretty much any, any enemy infantry can run over them. They can do damage. Uh, it, it doesn't go without saying, or it goes without saying that um, attacking defense five with a strength three model is unbelievably better than attacking strength defense six, okay? That yep. needing a five to wound, massive game changer. 
17% better, in fact. That's right. Absolute value, 17%. Big, big difference. And lastly is deployment. Unlike to the death where your opponents deploy, you know, 12 inches up. In this game, everyone's deploying 24 inches up. And that means you're effectively losing out on two shooting phases, right? Especially if you're looking at your standard six-inch moving um, army, right? You're, lo- you're, you're losing out on, on two shooting phases, potentially. And for a leaf blower, that's crippling, okay? And last but not least, number five, the worst person, the worst army type that hates this mission, surprise, surprise, is Horde. I think that pretty much goes without saying it's their worst mission. Whereas other missions might be their best, this is their worst. Um, Horde armies are generally weaker in kill missions to begin with than other army types, but it's very much exacerbated in Lords of Battle, right? Their army size often doubles and triples their opponents, and it runs very quickly into that critical threshold issue we talked about, where it doesn't take much for your opponent to exceed the total number of wounds you can pull from them in terms of their wound potential, and therefore their chances of winning infinitesimally drop, right? They have to go to the nuclear option of tabling you to win, okay? Secondly, weak defense, right? While the leaf floor may have poor defense, the horde generally have worse defense. It's generally sitting in the defense three, defense four area. And so enemy infantry and other army types excel at piling up the kill tally because most strength three armies can wound them on fours, right? And that's really bad for them. And breaking for a horde army contributes to the wound tally because they have low courage, Mm. generally speaking, meaning the moment they break, models start flying off the table. And that just makes the wound tally worse and worse for them to try to catch up. So for them, once they break, there's none of this like, oh, no, I've broken. I still have a chance of sort of clawing this back. No, actually, now what you've broken, your big issue of low courage is going to come into play and you're going to have even a harder time um, sort of trying to claw things back and, and it will really sort of push you into that that triple wound tally for your opponent and thus they get seven VPs out of you. So this is really a, the worst mission for Horde. No, I would agree for sure. All right, Don, I've gone through my rankings. What do you think? All right, uh, so rather than me go through all of them, I'll just tell you kind of, um, I have one major disagreement with you uh, and two smaller disagreements. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a, in a sense, I have three different scores than what you have. I agree Linebreaker mm-hmm. is number one. I don't think there's any question in that. In that, This, this mission is ideal for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, leaf Blower, uh, number four, totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing they, they can hope for is that they're playing a horde. <laughs> yeah, <literally. laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, or maybe another leaf blower, but other than that, mm-hmm. you're in trouble. Um, horde for sure. Number five, there's just too many disadvantages. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, however, I disagree with your score on the other three oh. mobile combined arms and, and shield wall. So you had, mobile and combined arms uh, at a number two Mm -hmm. and you had shield wall at a number four Mm -hmm. um basically my major disagreement is with the shield wall and i really think that you sort of caught yourself in a trap and were thinking about the shield wall from the perspective of a line breaker um 
I really think you missed the mark with the shield wall army type, putting them mm-hmm. in a four. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to put them as a two in this. Wow. So two points higher than where you have them. Mm-hmm. Um, because I play a lot of shield wall, and mm-hmm. I love it when this mission comes up. One and, and actually, one thing I did after thinking about this, I pulled up our episode number 10, Mm-hmm. which was our first episode on the army types and oh. it was shield wall and i listened to that and i thought like am i right in what i'm thinking here like what did we actually say when we we talked about shield wall so that's what some of my points are are based on so one of the big strengths of the shield wall is that the army is very resilient okay mm-hmm. In our shield wall episode, we stated that these army, armies are normally defense six to eight, primarily mm-hmm. seven or eight, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a very valuable trait in a mission where you get VPs for killing enemy models um, as they're going to have a hard time racking up kills against your army because one of the strengths that you're offering up is very high defense. Um one of the big weaknesses of the shield wall army is that it's not very mobile so it can have issues with closing on the enemy quickly and getting to grips or in missions where board control is required in this mission you can deploy up to 24 inches onto the table so that greatly mitigates the issue of getting to grips with the enemy so no doubt they will still have they will still save a couple of points of might on heroic moves also, no board control is required in Lords of Battle, so that problem is gone for the Shield Wall Army as well. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but this mission allows you to pl- deploy your army together in a formation, something we said is very important in our strategy section on the Shield Wall. Mm-hmm. Also, we talked about how important it was for a Shield Wall to be able to anchor one or both flanks against a terrain piece. So having half of the table available to deploy means you'll most likely be able to start in a very strong position. Most importantly, the shield wall army is all about fighting your opponent in melee. In Lords of Battle, your opponent really doesn't have much other choice but to enter into combat. Sure, your opponent can try to shoot you, but losing models to shooting isn't really a big concern for the shield wall. Shield wall should be in position number two. This is a very strong mission for them. I'd also drop mobile to a three. The mission offers nothing in terms of VPs for being mobile. No objectives or board control needed. No artifacts to grab no points for running off the table, no maelstrom deployment, which Mobile loves. This is a very average mission draw for them. So position three out of five. Also, they are worse than Shield Wall, for sure, in my mind. Also, I drop Combined Arms to a three as well. This is an army built to be able to play in any mission. However, there is only one game here, fight. They are weaker at this mission than Linebreaker and Shield Wall, so they are pushed to position three by default. And that's it. That's my thoughts. Mm, interesting, interesting. 
That is true. When I built, when I when I was thinking about the shield wall, I was thinking about the defense six shield wall. That sort of more came out through my head. The defense seven wasn't uh, too common or too thoughtful in my head that that moment. But which make which you know does make you do make a good point about that. Um, but the hitting power of the shield wall that's the challenge. And I think the other thing is that you you make a good point. There's no board control uh, in this one. But oftentimes the shield wall has to close, right? Because that's where it's doing its killing power. As you said, that's where its main fighting uh, potential is in fighting. Whereas any other army type is going to do, outside of line breaker, of course, is going to do all of its tricks to sort of soften up the shield wall in advance. And mm -hmm. I find that when a mobile army hits a shield wall and does it properly, don't get me wrong, like not slam into the whole line all at once like a schmuck, um, but does it properly, uh, whether you're strength three or strength four, generally speaking, uh, I find a mobile army has enough dice to roll in the dual roll that they can start killing models, right? Um, and that's really hard for a shield wall to keep up. Also, a mobile army can dance around a shield wall, right? Like mobility is a challenge with the shield wall army. So you can hit a flank with some guys, kill some. I mean, obviously not killing a lot, but kill some. And then all of a sudden, as a shield ball player, I'm forced to make the decision, do I rush against that flank and allow my opponent to attack my other flank uh, while I'm sort of in a bad position? Or do I just sort of like split my army in half and let half the army kind of like do its thing? And you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. because uh, generally if a shield wall has positioned themselves in a really rock solid place, um, it will come down to who is doing more damage from shooting, I think, in the end, right? Or, or a lot of this can like also depend on the table. Like, mm -hmm. I, I understand what you're saying, and, like, in theory, on paper, it all makes sense. But in practice, it, it doesn't mm -hmm. often come out that way because, honestly, with deployment here, you're going to be able to deploy one flank against terrain. So oh, are, already you're giving the mobile army a very difficult target for a charge. Um, mm -hmm. Like if, if a mobile army charges a shield wall head on, they're going to lose. There's oh, no course. question about it because they can't yeah. bring the numbers to bear. Mm -hmm. So if that situation prevents itself, the mobile army, they can't charge. They got to figure out something else. And, you know, and, and like you said, a lot of this can come down to shooting. And mm -hmm. even though the, the shield wall doesn't have like a huge contingent of shooting, they have like yeah. a, a decent amount of shooting. And in this here, hitting the horses is just a win-win. Of course. You know, because they're easy kills, strength two mm -hmm. versus defense four, you know, or strength three versus defense four. You only need a five to kill the horse, and then you've mm -hmm. eliminated a mounted model and mm -hmm. picked up a VP. Um, you know, I've played this a lot against all different army types, and I'm not afraid of a mobile army in, in this mission at all. Okay. I, well, I, I, so I, could, I could see bumping the shield wall up to a three, in my opinion. Um, and I could even see bumping a mobile army down to a three. Like, I could see that. Um, but I definitely don't see bumping combined arms below shield wall. I just don't see that. And I, I say that for three reasons. One, a mo uh, combined arms generally has, if it's got a siege weapon, which most of them do, shield wall struggles against siege weapons. They do, right? The, the, the sheer hitting power of a siege uh, weapon, either with the, the splash knockdown or even the Avenger mm -hmm. bolt thrower with the defense seven shot or strength seven shots, siege engineers, shield wall armies struggle to, to, to deal with that. Uh, and okay, then the well, other piece is the wizard. Ahead. 
right? The wizard mm-hmm. can really make a, a mockery of a shield wall army, either through some sorceress blasts, um, locking out your hero so they do nothing. So your big hero, which is designed to kill defense seven, defense eight models, can just start mowing slowly through a shield wall army, right? So, um, like, so I, I can see some of that. Let me tell you why a shield wall is better than a combined arms in this mission. Okay. Deploying on the 24-inch mark. That's mm-hmm. why. Because it doesn't leave enough time for the combined arms to do its thing. Not only that, but the shield wall doesn't have to deploy in a shield wall. They don't have to deploy in two ranks. They can deploy in one rank, and they can just push forward. Sure, you're going to get lose a couple models to a siege engine for maybe two turns of shooting, and that's all it's going to do. After that, like you're going to basically move your entire army up into combat with their entire army. Wizards hate being in combat, right? Mm-hmm. Siege engines hate being in combat. Archers hate being in combat, right? The only thing mm-hmm. they've got going for them is their one big hero and their little tiny shield wall to oppose you. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to be killing all of their warriors with your warriors just galore in this in this mission. Mm-hmm. I, that, I that's disagree. my thought. No, I, I totally get you. I, I disagree. Mm-hmm. I think, as you said, the, t- the missions will play out, like the tables make a big difference. And I, I don't think you can spread your whole shield wall out in a single line formation. Like, it's just too much board control and the, sp- the speed at which they can close would allow uh, combined arms to really sort of um, take advantage of that. And, you know, I, I see this mission as more of a combined arms would sit in a corner, right? Like defending their, their, uh, their you know, their siege weapons. Ah, the and old corner camping. Eh? The old corner camping. And I tell you, if you're going to yeah. spread your army out uh, in a big long line, that just allows them to keep shooting all game until, you know, they've engaged, right? So I, I still see the combined arms being hired in the shield wall. So. Well, okay. Uh, that's what that's what basically governed my changes to yours is that I definitely see it a number two, and I see it better than mobile and combined arms. So it pushes them down to a three. That's generally how I see it. But you okay. know, I, I respect your opinion as well. Yeah, I, I think. Oh, oh, no. oh, get out of here! It's not <laughs> wrong. Uh, I, I'm happy to concede. I'm happy to concede moving mobile to three and shield wall up to three. I'm happy to do that. But I'm not moving combined arms. I think. All that right. They, we'll, we'll, take, we'll take. We'll take mi- minor victories. Minor victories. <laughs> okay. Alrighty. Oh, and, and, and lastly, yeah. I will say that she, this mission is not a 12-0 mission for Shield Wall. No. Right? No. The, this is a, they will win more times than they lose, so they mm-hmm. like it. But Shield yeah. Wall doesn't get 12-0s. Almost never do they get a 12-0. No. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, they don't get a 12-0, and they don't often get 12 would I'll say that. That's the beauty of the Shield Wall. All right, so uh, moving on to the next segment, Army versus Army thoughts on the underdog, I guess. I guess it's a sub-segment. So here we're talking about how everyone can do against the best, who's in number one, and how the worst can do against everyone else, okay? So let's start with everyone versus the linebreaker, right? So linebreaker is extremely hard to beat in, uh, in Lords, uh, more so than to the death. And mostly because this is the aforementioned deployment options, right? Which means you have less turns for shooting and magic, means that they can engage with your lines faster, okay? Still, it's worth noting the usual counters, and I'll just say this, it's the usual, because every time we talk about this, it's always gonna be the usual counters for, for against linebreaker. Surprise, surprise, dismount the enemy heroes. You wanna do that. Disable enemy heroes through spellcasting. If you've got spellcasters, 
transfixing them is the way to go. And let me tell you, it just got a hell of a lot easier because Galadriel is not, Lady of Light is not going to be in a whole lot of uh, Yellow Alliance armies moving forward. Spoiler alert. And Black Darks and Target Horses. That's right. Shoo, shoo. It's important. Um, and move away from the line breaker uh, force and shoot it. Do not move up to engage, right? When we talked about how the shield wall should move up to engage, this is one of those unique situations where the shield wall doesn't want to move up to engage. It actually wants to stay back and fire whatever it's shooting it has, right? Because the line breaker army is always going to want to move up to engage, always, regardless of what type it's playing against. The bows you take in a line breaker force are often used to slow down a mobile army type to allow it to charge, right? So you really want to start getting that wound tally up as early as you can against a line breaker. Obviously, you're shooting for the enemy horses, but honestly, killing anything is big because if the shield wall charges or the, the line breaker charges you in, charges in, and you've killed three or four, even five guys, well, you've got a 5-0 wound tally in your favor already. Okay. And that means they have to be even more aggressive to get caught up. And it also means, because this is a much smaller army, is that you can push them faster towards break. The faster you get them towards break, because they generally will be an army that might break first, uh, if you can get enough wounds on them, right? Assuming that you can sort of slow down their, their uh, leader's grind fest, their hero's grind fest. If you can get them to break quickly, then, then we get the game to end faster, which means they won't be able to tally up as many kills, okay? Um, and the other thing is, this is the mission to have your heroes uh, engage the enemy heroes where it's applicable. So we talked about how shield wall army, or sorry, line breaker armies, I keep saying shield wall, but line breaker armies, um, excel at killing mid to low tier heroes, okay? Your goal is to get whatever heroes you have that are superior to their heroes into combat with their heroes to stop them. Right? and then allow your infantry to overwhelm their much smaller infantry. Okay, That's the goal. right? And you can either do this with charging in a hero with heroic defense, install the, out the enemy hero with a, a calling heroic defense for, for two or three turns, um, and or charging a single infantry model into combat with a, a linebreaker hero, because then all of a sudden it's about minimizing how many models they can kill, right? And also minimizing their mobility. And we talked a lot about this in the, in the To the Death um, episode. So nothing more needs to be said on that. Got it. Uh, and also is the, ho jumping over to the Horde, the Horde versus everyone else, right? So how mm -hmm. does the Horde do better? <laughs> well, it's a hard mission to win. Let's just say that. But it's not an impossible task. And there are two ways of doing this. First is not letting your opponent get more than three VPs from the kill tally, right? And that means swarming their army and attempting to roll a flank, right? Your goal, you acknowledge that you're going to lose models. That happens. But your goal is, I need to be killing at a rate as quick as they are killing. And that means swarming them, overwhelming them, getting to the back of, the, uh, of their lines if possible, because if they're fighting you on a 2v2... Generally, they have higher fight value and they can wound you better. But if they're so, fighting you... So when you say three VPs, so essentially what you're saying is you can accept having your enemy be ahead of you on the kill tally, but don't let them get like to two times or three times. Exactly. So you have to say to yourself, look, they're going to kill more models than me. 
but I have to be killing at a rate that keeps them below a two to one ratio, okay? Because in that way, I can win on the secondaries, which means break, which means enemy leader, okay? And to that next point, focus your hitting power on hunting down the enemy leader and killing them. Lastly, focus on breaking them. So the idea here is you swarm their battle line, right? You swing around the flanks, you get to the back where possible, okay? So all of a sudden, instead of it being a 2v2, line-on-line uh, -line clash, it becomes a 1v2. Yeah, they'll probably still win those, um, not as often as they were, but they'll still win those and they'll still get the occasional kill. But the difference is you'll be getting a lot more traps in your case. Higher defense is less relevance to you because you'll be throwing two to four dice per attack um, and killing infantry. And as long as you're not letting them um, kill you on a two to one ratio, um, you stand still a very good chance or a three to one ratio. So the idea here is even if they score more wounds than you, as long as they are leaderless and broken, you will still win the game five three. Okay. Yeah, like as, as long as you can go even somewhere close to being one kill for one kill. Mm -hmm. I mean, if like if they get four kills and you get three kills, that, that's fine. That's fine. No, pro yeah. no problem. Because remember, you will break. Um, it takes a lot more for you to break as a horde player than it is for them to break. Their breaks probably 18 models. Your breaks probably 40 models. Okay. So in this case, if you're killing three models and they're killing four or even five, guess who gets to break first? They'll be broken first, which means if they're broken, um, they're going to be struggling just to keep their models on the table because any model not engaged with you at the start of the turn needs to make a, a stand fast check, right? A courage check to stay on the table. Um, the other option is the nuclear option. Yeah, you mentioned this Let's, off the top. Yeah. So... You have not succeeded in keeping them to two to one. In fact, they're at three to one. They're murdering your way through their lines. Well, you have one option left, and that is to wipe them out. And as we talked about that clause in the, in the VP rules for Lords of Battle, it states that either triple your opponent in, in wounds or wipe them out and you score seven VPs. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if they still have a higher wound tally than you at the end of the game. Wiping them out will automatically cause the VPs to flip in your favor. Okay. Because like it's important to mention that like if the game ends and mm -hmm. you know the horde is coming back, they're starting to do really well. The, the the opponent now only has a handful of models left on the table, but the game ends. Well, they pick up the seven VPs. That's all they need to win the game. If they've tabled your opponent, like there's the enemy. No, no, no. I'm saying if if the horde does not table their opponent mm, and the horde true. is down by th mm -hmm. the opponent has three times, mm -hmm. but you know they they're about to wipe out their opponent, right? Mm -hmm. But the game ends. Just those seven VPs, not including any other VPs for breaking or leader, those mm -hmm. seven VPs will win the, them the game. Pretty much, yeah. Because then it will be at that point. Seven to probably five, because they'll have probably killed your leader, broke you. They won't be broken. Their leader won't be wounded, but they still win seven to five, right? So in those situations, you have to throttle up and you have to table them. Now, unfortunately, this also relies upon the game lasting longer, right? Not rolling that one or two, all right? So how do you do this? One, luck. The game has to go on five mm -hmm. or six turns. Um, two, save your might if you're a horde player for the break. Because this is where you need that might to throttle up, right? And your heroes have to be doing a lot more killing. So the idea is if your hero, if your infantry plus heroes are killing at a rate, um, at some rate, uh, 
Um, that's clearly not, you know, um, that, that's clearly not two or three times, not, not limiting your opponent to two or three times their kill rate. But if, as long as your infantry and heroes are killing models at a reasonable rate leading up to the break, once your opponent breaks, that's when you start using your might. You start using your might on heroic combats. That's the, the game changers. When you dive your hero in, you use a lot of, you try to do a lot of springboard heroic combats. That's where your heroes will charge the flanks. They'll call their heroic um, combat against an infantry, try to get as many models in on that, on, on that enemy model as possible, kill that model, and start springboarding their, their, your models, I should say, your horde models, into the back flanks, uh, into the back ranks, and get as many kills as you possibly can. Calling heroic combats is a critical piece to wiping out your opponent as fast as you possibly can with the, the least amount of turns, right? So save that might for those moments. Secondly, tag the enemy heroes as quickly as possible, especially if they're a low courage army, because unengaged warriors have to make the courage test and to stay on the table, and they may actually just bolt and flee. Okay, so that, again, that's a freebie kill for you right off the top. So if your opponent is a Courage 2 army, for whatever reason, they're not Horde, but if they're a Courage 2 army, and you could tag as many heroes as you can, and even if you can't envelop as many of uh, as many models as you as you want, leaving unengaged models forces Courage checks, which, you know, you have a reasonably high chance of getting them to run off the, the table, right? just versus having to go through a fight and try to kill them. Um, so don't think that's not a bad option. Um, the third option, or sorry, and yeah, we, we talked about luck. So those are kind of the things, but that's the nuclear option to, um, to try to win it with Horde. <laughs> win by elimination. <laughs> and now on to the final sub-segment of this. Uh, let's talk about tips and tricks to the mega win. Or, All right. Don... Well, you've got your tips and tricks for a mega win. So I'm going to let you read your tips and tricks for a mega win because you're like the competitive guy. Yeah. I'm going to give my my position from the point of view of don't be the zero in the 12 to zero. Well done. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Alrighty, uh, we've already talked about a lot of these already, sort of sprinkled yeah. about in our previous conversation, as well as you know in the uh, other missions. So I like the first one that you have here, though. This makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So we we talked about this at the beginning of this, but it's good important. It's important to reiterate this, and that's know the total amount of wounds your opponent can give up before the game begins. Okay, and that means counting up the wounds and the fate on heroes along with mounts. Because it's important to know the maximum potential wounds tally, all right, the maximum of wounds on the table that your opponent gives up versus what you can give up. And this, and if this disparity is sort of heavily in your opponent's favor, meaning you have a larger number of wounds to give up, you need to play more conservatively and not overextend yourself. And I think that in most cases, just an approximate tally would be enough. Mm -hmm. You know, like they have like way more than me or way less than me. You're probably good good enough. If it if it's getting like really tight, you know, you don't want to spend like ten minutes trying to figure out exactly how many they have. It's true. Uh, and but the the important thing here is, if you notice that your your disparity is really bad in your favor, meaning you have more models, and you notice your opponent says runs a mobile army or has a lot of mounted um, uh, models, 
you need to really incorporate killing horses or killing mounts as your strategy. That's really, and I think that'll surprise your opponent because not a lot of opponents think, ooh, I've got you know 30 models, they've got 50 models, and that means I'm doing better than on the wound tally. They forget about the horse piece, okay? They forget about the mount piece. So always keep that in the back of your head, um, that mounts count as a point. And oftentimes, killing a mount before killing the, the model that's riding it uh, makes the subsequent killing of the, the mount that was riding it a heck of a lot easier, right? Because um, like if you're a strength three army and you're fighting against maybe say defense six cavalry, well, the mount isn't defense six, generally speaking, unless you're playing Easterlings. The mount's generally four or five, and that means you can kill it a lot easier, right? So you kill the thing, the guy drops to the ground, uh, you, you try to wound him, and guess what? Next turn, whether he wins the, the priority role in the heroic move off, he's not getting his cab bonuses. So killing those mounts is important. Killing a horse is always good. In Lords of Battle, it's extra good. Right, they, they reward you for it, in fact. Yeah, yeah. So here, here's my my response from the don't be a zero and the 12 to zero. Oh, I like and it. And it's, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, this is good advice for both sides. You know, it's always good to know what's possible, even whether you're winning or if you're the underdog in a game. So, yeah, to me, this is, this is a great idea. Mm -hmm. Also, to go along with this, and this is pretty standard stuff to begin with, have a piece of paper and a pencil, and always know the wound tally at all times, okay? I cannot stress this enough, how many times I've seen my opponent say to me, how many models have you killed? And I say, uh, how many models do you have you lost? And I say, 10, and he looks at his pile and says, oh God, I've got 20, I'm screwed. I'm like, you should be knowing this every turn because your strategy changes as this goes along because if you realize I've got 10 models dead and he has you know um, he's got 20 I'm winning the wound tally currently I've got 20 wounds to his 10 right and I'm saying to myself doing some quick arithmetic in my head um, how close is he to break um, should I throttle up and push him into a break uh, is the current speed at which we're killing models uh, I'm killing models to the ratio that he's killing models good enough these are some really th quick things you should think of at the top of the round prior to the priority role so that you can determine, do I really want to win this priority role? Do I want him to win it or him or her? But yeah, so having a piece of paper and pencil, tracking these things down, that's the second tip or trick. Always know because it will change how the, the top of the round decision making happens, right? So very critical to know, okay? Just like it's very critical, very critical to know what your opponent's heroes might will and fate and wounds are. Always know that, okay? And that's a general comment made for everything, all right? So, second mega a tip or trick to the S mega Speaking wing. about might, will, and fate leads mm. us on to heroics. Oh, that's right, that's right. Um, heroic combat is your friend. Okay, so first let me take a step back. Every one of these missions, I always like to try to, try to focus on one type of heroic action that generally sort of shines above all the others. This is a killing mission. So guess what? Heroic combat is your friend here. <laughs> okay? Mm -hmm. You want to kill as many warriors as possible. Uh, you know, if, the, if your strategies are When is warriors. heroic combat not your friend? Come on. Um, heroic combat's not your that friend. That wasn't a serious question. Just go oh. on. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it'll come up. It'll come up in other missions. But anyways. Um, so essentially, being able to kill four warriors with a mounted hero from a hero combat is like the ideal. That's what you want. Okay. Um, 
So if your hero can kill two um, enemy warriors, um, or even win a a four dice duel, like that your opponent has four dice, two two shield wall individuals, two shielding two shield individuals and two spear individuals, if they, that hero can win that fight and reliably kill two infantry, yes, you should be calling her combat with this model because you want to try to rack up as many kills as possible. Okay. The second heroic combat which shines is the heroic defense as your friend. Cannot stress this enough. How do you stall an enemy hero? If you don't have shooting, if you don't have magic, heroic defense is the best way of doing it. Because heroic defense appears on so many heroes that are between the 50 and 110 point range and throwing that model into a 150 to 250 point enemy hero and calling heroic defense Guess what? Stalls the, that enemy hero out for two, potentially yep. three turns. Big, big, big. Yeah, big, and this big, one, big. this one really belongs in uh, in my section of like, if you're a guy that's struggling against a competitive player and you're thinking to yourself, "Oh my God, don't let me be the zero in a twelve to zero, then <laughs> heroic defense is where you're at. Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah, you want to, you know, he's he's going for the heroic combats. You want to stop the heroic combats. So if you're evil shoot into the combat kill your own model the mm -hmm. enemy won't get the vp for the kill and it stops the heroic so it's yep. a wasted point of might just huge you know hurl or sorceress blast a model into those combats to knock everyone down stops the heroic combat mm -hmm. um, very important also what very good way to slow them down yeah also what stops her combat is um if you see a big enemy hero charging into two infantry and you, you know what's coming down and you have a fairly resilient hero that's also on a mount charging to combat one it can stop the hero combat dead because they, they, they think to themselves i can't kill as many models or two and this is another scenario if the enemy hero charges your hero and you know for a fact your hero is going to die they don't have heroic strike they they're definitely going to die call a heroic combat if they call a heroic combat. And here's why. If you call a heroic combat and they call a heroic combat and you win the roll off and your heroic combat goes first and they kill your guy, they don't move ahead. They don't go anywhere, right? They just killed your guy and that's all they get, okay? So don't forget oh, very that. very good, yeah. Never yeah, thought of it, that. Because it, it, it takes that, that situation from, oh, God, he's going to springboard off my weaker hero and win, to he has a 50% mm -hmm. chance of doing absolutely nothing. And it's especially useful if there's multiple heroic combats being called all over the place. It then comes down to, do you want to sacrifice your big hero over here, um, killing this my, my, my low B hero and running into doing something else? Because um, if they, they want that, they'll go for that first, but they might screw themselves over on another side of the battlefield, right? So don't be afraid to, to call that hero combat to stymie them, okay? Well, if you also, you mentioned like charging their big hero with like maybe a lesser hero of yours that's also mounted, well, that removes their cavalry bonus. Yeah. Cavalry versus cavalry. So it suddenly becomes much more difficult for them to kill you all in one go. Especially for those mid-tier heroes that have A, a lance, um, or B, they've got uh, two attacks and they rely upon that third attack from the cav charge. You get an, a cav model in on that, all of a sudden mm -hmm. it's a two-attack hero that's now only two attacks. That doesn't get the knockdown. Um, yep. And you know what I mean? So that all of a sudden can really neuter their, their killing yep. power. No extra attack, have, no knockdown. 
Yeah, and that can happen just by using a regular warrior cav model. Just into the back, catch them off guard, and all of a sudden you can stymie a, a line breaker charge just by doing that, which is two or three uh, warrior cav yeah, models. Yeah, I like it. I like it. All right. So, second point. Board control is useless. I say relatively useless. Um, so shoot him if you got him. Okay, so this is not an objective mission. Okay, sections of the board don't matter. Okay, it does from the perspective of pieces of terrain you hide behind, pieces of terrain you use to anchor your flank, you know, that whole shield ball discussion we had. So there is an element of board control that is important. Don't get me wrong. Okay. Um, board control is never useless. All right. It's a very important in some cases, but owning the whole board is relatively useless. So if you have the ability to move quickly and shoot along the flanks, use it. Um, always be shooting if you can, because you really want to get some kills pre-clash. Let me tell you the psychological benefit of getting the first kill or the first wound, the, the player that get the first wound um, on the board is such a big thing for your opponent because it's like if we get into a shooting spree, uh, I'm sitting on the 24 inch line, you're sitting back on the six inch line, we get to shooting and you cause the first wound, I might very much give up on shooting and just run at you, right? Especially if I'm an army that can do that. And so all of a sudden it's like, cool, you're no longer shooting. I'm just gonna keep shooting at you willy nilly, right? So being able to get the first wound uh, on the board is such a big psychological ben uh, benefit for you. And like, a, it's a, such a detriment to players that just don't see it because especially if like one or two turns of shooting go by and you score more wounds than they do, they'll be like, no, nah, that's not working for me. I got to run at you. Even if those two turns of shooting were just dismal dice rolls on their side versus you just having really good dice rolls. So don't underestimate the psychological benefit of scoring first. Yeah, and like I think this is just good general advice. I don't think it really favors a competitive or non-competitive player or someone who's winning or losing. It's just it's just all around good observation. Mm -hmm. So the other piece that we've already talked about, you know, from a psychological perspective, is momentum, right? We always talk about momentum, right? Yeah. How you build momentum and then steal it from your opponent, and that sort of it, it can snowball yeah, into. You love talking about momentum. That's one. Momentum of your is things. important. It momentum is. is important because this game is as much about models moving around the table and rolling dice as it is about the psychological component of your opponent's mental state and your mental momentum state. definitely affects the psychological uh, mm -hmm. position of your opponent. That's that's I think for sure. It's undoubtable. So undoubtable. Even in professional sports, quicksand is a thing, and that is failure to hold momentum. You're losing momentum all of a sudden. And we've talked about this at length in earlier episodes. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm always bringing it up as a tip or trick, right? So psychologically speaking, if you are leading the kill tally, like I talked about that first blood, but if you are leading the kill tally and you are especially leading the kill tally by a lot, your opponent is going to get desperate because the momentum is in their, in your favor. They're gonna start making more aggressive moves when reality is they could just wait until they break and start clawing back because your momentum could be caused by overextending your army, right? By throwing your heroes and getting them really in aggressively and going for the throat. But if you mm -hmm. go for the throat too early, and your opponent doesn't see this, or your opponent sees this, they could say, you know what? You're, you're racking up the kills quickly. I'm just going to wait until you've totally overextended yourself 
and make my move and kill your heroes and claw myself back, right? So, yeah. so while yes, the, the, the psychological component of momentum is important to understand from both sides, but there's also the piece of if I'm wiping my opponent out, it's about how I'm doing it. If I've overextended myself, maybe I've thrown the momentum unconsciously in my opponent's favor, not because of the kill tally, but because my opponent sees the mistakes I'm making and is about to capitalize. I just don't see the momentum shift, but it's already shifted and I'm just not seeing it just because all I'm seeing is dead models. So it's really important from a momentum perspective as also a psychological perspective that when you are scoring these kills, from your perspective, when you're scoring these kills, do not be doing it from a position of weakness. Don't overextend yourself. Even if it looks like you're gonna pull out into a really big early lead, don't mm -hmm. overextend yourself so that you wind up um, losing it um, after your opponent breaks because they can claw it back and they can win the game from you. Yeah, okay. it's a common mistake that sort of newer players or inter even intermediate players make with big heroes. And in this mission, they're they're kind of like hand grenades. You know, you mm -hmm. you just throw them in, and they're going to do far more damage than than your. They're going to collect far more VPs than they're going to give up when they die. But you still have to manage them and keep a close eye on them. Like you don't want to just throw them in too deep and have them die really fast before they've had a chance to rack up their kills. Mm -hmm. Now, 100% agree. Um, now, there's always one of these instances I'll make a comment about each, each, each mission where I call it the jank. Mm -hmm. And it's not the nicest thing to do, and, and, but it is within the rules. And as a, we're playing it, talking about a competitive oh, podcast, this competitive um, um, discussion on Lords of Battle, this is important to know. If you are in control of the momentum, and in a good way, right, you're grinding your opponent down, you're getting those kills, um, one thing to do is to let your opponent know what the kill tally is at the end of each turn. Okay, where you say, hey, I think I've got 10 kills to your three, is that right? Cool. Next turn you say, I think I've got six kills to your four, is that right? Yep, yeah, okay. By announcing it, your opponent is now painfully aware. And if you announce that you're winning the kill tally for three or four turns in a row, <laughs> your opponent now fully is aware of the fact that they're losing and they have no momentum. So you are purposely making sure that you are using the gains of winning while eroding their psychological state so they continue to make more aggressive and potentially stupid mistakes that you can capitalize on. So that is yeah, the that, jank. That is the jank. <laughs> that is the jank. That is a check. Now, have I ever done that? Um, generally not. It's generally I'll 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 check in because um, I generally try to keep tally every um, each turn because it's so important for me. And sometimes I'll check in. I'll be like, hey, how many kills do you have? He'll count it out. Okay, okay. And I'll give him my tally and we'll move on. But I don't ever do it every turn. Um, but if you do, there are some benefits. So. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So the also, it's, it can be annoying. <laughs> yes, that is the other piece, especially if your opponent is being told that their kill tally is less every turn. Uh, it is such an annoying and frustrating thing. So, um, okay, so for here, here from my from my side, you know, yeah. don't want to be the zero in the twelve to zero. Okay, so yeah. you're losing the game. All right, mm -hmm. here it is. Don't give up. It's the hardest thing to do sometimes because it, your your psyche could be driving you right now to give up or just like throw your models away. You see it happen all the time. Don't give up, okay? The thing you gotta remember in this mission, 
okay, is it could go on and on and on. You know, it, mm-hmm. just because you get broken doesn't mean the game is going to suddenly end. Mm-hmm. Now, it's like if your opponent has got three times your kill and is therefore going to get seven VP, you got to remember, it's very difficult to remain at that three times kill ratio if the yeah. game goes long. Okay, it's very hard to maintain that. So hang on and do your best to present the, prevent the 12 to zero loss. Remember in this mission that VPs for kill tally can only go to one person, one guy or the other. But mm-hmm. the VPs for leader kill, which is one or two, and the VPs for breaking, which is one or three, can go to both players. So no matter what's going on with the kill tally, there are still VPs there for you. You know, if you are losing the game, especially if they have three times the kills that you have, Mm -hmm. focus hard, hard, hard on breaking your opponent. This will turn his points from breaking you from a three VP to zero into a one-to-one if it ends with both of you being broken okay Mm -hmm. it will also gain you a lot of kills for your kill tally and it will likely drop his seven vps down to five or down to even three you can lose this game big on kill tally and still pick up three vps for yourself if you do that your 12-0 loss becomes a 10-3 loss much Mm -hmm. more respectable Mm-hmm. 100% agreed. The other piece here is, remember, uh, some tournaments, they they do major and minor victories, mm-hmm. okay? So by keeping the kill tally low from a double-triple perspective, right? Like, let's say your opponent gets double, right? But you say, look, I've got opportunities to kill their enemy leader and to break them, and for some reason I'm able to not be broken and my leader's not to be wounded, well, yeah. they'll win 5-3, right? But they're not going to get a major win, right? And you're going to get a minor loss, right? So in, in these, types of, these types of tournaments that have the sort of major minor, that is such a massive difference because someone with four major wins and one minor loss can score much higher than someone with four major, four major wins and a major loss, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's so critical to acknowledge that, that the minor loss versus a major loss in that type of mission, not a bad thing to have happen to you. And a lot of tournaments use VPs as tiebreakers. Mm-hmm. So even though it doesn't sound like a lot, the fact that you're denying your opponent two and you're picking up three for yourself it could have a big impact on where you finish or where they finish. Mm-hmm. And also VP differential is another tiebreaker. Right? Yep. So that, that 10 to three is only a seven VP differential versus 12 is a 12 VP yeah. differential. And big that's difference. assuming they still get the seven, right? That's mm-hmm. assuming yeah, they exactly. get the seven, they get the break and they get the leader kill. They may not get all mm-hmm. of that stuff. All right. So the next piece for the tips and tricks we've already talked about, kill the horses. If there's a horse, kill it. Generally speaking, um, your ability to kill horses, you have a better chance of wounding a horse than you do a rider. Um, So go for the horse. And in this mission, it's so critical to go for the horses. Get those VPs. Absolutely. Uh, And then when in doubt, wipe them out. So you're never out of the game, as Don said. Even if your points kill tell you went too fast. Back it up. Sorry. Buttercup. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, 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 oh. Go for it. 
Okay, so from the don't want to be the zero perspective, um, if you know you've lost the game, keep track of your opponent's uh, VPs and what they actually need to be three times your count in kills or, or tally rather because mm -hmm. there will be times and we're talking about kill the horses here remember okay mm -hmm. there will be times when it makes sense just to dismount a model or two to deny your opponent those victory points mm. he doesn't get points for horses that flee so if mm -hmm. you know your model is going to die and they're most likely not going to kill anything dismount one less vp for your opponent that is very true. That is very, very true. Especially if you've broken your opponent and engaging in their battle line is no longer a critical component to winning the game. It could just be, there are times where, you know, if you're playing a mobile heavy army or a mounted heavy army and you've broken your opponent, the game is now ticking down to the end game condition or it's ticking mm -hmm. down to the game ending. And you've noticed that your model count is, you know, you are in a position where you could lose this game if you keep pressing on your opponent, sometimes running away is not a bad thing, right? Especially if you score no, the no. two yeah. or three PVP differential. Um, running away, just run away and then dismount. And all of a sudden you've now limited your opponent's potential wounds to being something where they need to wipe you out and then you just run away from them for the rest of the game. Mm -hmm. It's not a fun thing for your opponent to see, but you know what? Scoring that seven, that seven points for the VP differential, that is a big chunk of points. So don't hesitate. I'd say that's possibly even verging on a jank move. It is uh, definitely verging on a potential jank move. Um, I've never done it myself, but then again, I've never played a heavy mobile army. Uh, again, this is extremely situational, right? Yeah, like and it's something is, you would only ever do in this specific mission. Yeah, pretty much. The, the idea of dismounting and giving up one of your biggest advantages of having a mounted model is um, only something where you'd want to save the, the VPs or save the, the, uh, the wound tally. So moving on to when in doubt, wipe them out. As Dawn said before, you're never really out of the game. So even if your opponent kill tally is triple yours, if their forces are dwindling and you've broken them, go for the throat and wipe them out. Okay, you know, as we mentioned in the, in the horde section, um, wiping them out immediately gives you triple the VP tally uh, and also automatically makes you win the game. Now, the automatically winning the game part is from the rule book, the triple the seven VPs is from this mission in particular. Okay, now I'll say this this is going to really create some really weird scoring. Okay, so let's say you wipe your opponent out and they have triple the VPs, still triple the VPs on you. Okay, and that is potentially possible. They will score seven VPs. You also will score seven VPs because you wipe them out. Um, and then you will score for whatever for leader and break. But the, so what you could end up actually having, happening is you could score eight VPs. Your opponent could score 10 VPs, right? But um, because you have wiped them out, regardless of whatever the score is, you automatically win the game. Okay, so something to take note of. No matter what the VP differential is at the end of the game, if you've wiped them out, you automatically win. Okay, so as we've talked about, that means being hyper aggressive, throwing your models at your opponent to maximize kills as quickly as you can, setting up as many trap situations and heroic combat springboards as you can, so you can bring your model count to bear on your opponent's dwindling forces. Do not, this is not a time to be conservative. You have to be utterly reckless. But 
um, cunningly reckless, where you're throwing your heroes into positions where you know you can get the kill. Um, you might be situations where you'll throw an infantry into one of their warriors. And then you'll throw three infantry into another warrior. Because again, it's about, I need to kill this guy as fast as I can. So securing those traps, even if it means sacrificing 10 or 15 warriors to kill 30 of theirs, you do it. Because again, it's about, you have no idea how many turns are left on the clock. You've got to kill them as fast as you can. So. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so, so I'm going to just jump in with my thoughts here. Mm-hmm. Okay, from the point of perspective of don't be the zero in a 12 to zero, yeah, mm -hmm. don't get wiped out. Even if you know you've lost, and this goes to the psych psychological thing, and you can't, if you know you've lost and you can't pull it back, resist the urge um, to fight in disadvantageous com on combats. You see it all the time. People are like, just, oh, I'll just fight, I'll just fight, and their models just die and die and die, right? Shield, shield in every combat where you can. Just hang in there and keep your models on the table. Play until the time is up or until the one or two is rolled. And mm -hmm. if your hyper aggressive opponent makes a mistake, kill a model here or there. It'll help you in the end because remember, in order to maintain his three times your kill tally, every model that you kill he has to have killed three for that one. So killing one model is a great way to bring you back and take him down to five VPs instead. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100% agree. So, yeah, once you see your opponent, because this also goes for the players who know they're winning and they can kind of see when their opponents, the only play left for their opponents to be hyper-aggressive. This is that moment where it's like, if you kind of see it coming, you know what they're gonna have to do it. The only way you really can counter this is just literally by running backwards and reforming your battle line, right? Because being hyper-aggressive um, really works when your opponents, when the battle lines are sort of scattered a bit, right? Like there's pockets in the battle lines where people can sort of make traps. But mm -hmm. if, if you're that army that's winning but could lose it all by being wiped out, reforming your battle lines so that they're solid and your opponent can't get traps on you really is the way to go to sort of like prolong your existence for as long as possible shield wall man form the shield wall that's one of their exactly. strengths exactly don't exactly. lose your models yeah that's the idea yeah so there's a special caveat i'd like to make for hero hunting we've talked all about it you know backwards and forwards but this is the mission for heroes that have blood and glory. Oh my god. If you have a hero with blood and glory... Remind me love, what blood and glory is again. If blood and glory is essentially if your hero kills an enemy hero, they gain a point of might back. Oh, okay. So it's already... <laughs> okay. <laughs> so essentially, the Lords of Battle, special rule, uh, gives everybody blood and glory, right? But blood and glory also stacks... Right? So if you're a hero like Gilgalad that goes hero hunting and kills a guy, and even if you're Gilgalad who's down to one might, he kills a hero, he goes back up to three might. Okay? Wow. Yeah. So having heroes with blood and glory in this mission is crazy good, and you really want them going hero hunting as much as they can. Because they can call heroic strike and even blow a point of might on doing a wound roll, especially if that's the wound roll that kills the enemy hero, and boom, they're back up to full might. So, yeah, wow, that's crazy, yeah. eh? Wow. 
Yeah, so having a, a blood, if you have a hero blood and glory, it absolutely must go hero hunting in this mission because it can rack up point. It might, like an insane amount of might for quick. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, I don't have any response to that, but I guess it would be stop the heroes that have blood and glory. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, get them to use up their might. Shoot out their mount. Run away from them. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> All the things that we've talked about before, but times two for the blood and glory guys. <laughs> yeah, they are brutal. Um, wow. Any final thoughts here, Don, on... Uh, no, I thought that, that was good. I, you know, that was uh, that was fun. It's You know, if you really think about it, you can you can really slice and dice these missions and... and uh, re really craft up a lot of theory on on all of these missions and this one I think is a really unique mission um, so it offers some really interesting situational uh, you know issues I guess mm -hmm. yeah now I will say this a couple of things now everyone who's listening to this is saying this is so micro crafted there's just no way it's got any practical ability in the game um, a couple of things here. You'll probably notice there's a lot of commonalities to things we're talking about, like how to deal with heroes, heroic defense, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, that's all commonality stuff. Any mission, any game, you would use that, right? Um, that's one of the reasons why we're talking about these tips and tricks for the mega win for each specific mission is because each specific mission has unique little things that you can do to really eke out, you know, that next, that, that, that extra victory point. And... When we so one, there's a lot of commonalities here. So it's not like you have to remember a million different things with like a dozen different things per mission. No, that's not the case. Okay. Once you've picked up on like the 20 or 30 different little tactics and subtactics, it works for everything. Okay. Two, this is where practice comes in. When you play a practice game, you can really start thinking about these types of moves really start getting them in your brain and it's a conscious effort and these things take time but that's okay you get a couple practice games in at lords of battle thinking about this style thinking about this mindset all of a sudden it becomes practiced it becomes unconscious so when you play in a tournament you're doing exactly what we're saying but you're just doing it unconsciously and you know the other good thing about repeating all of these common some of the common strategies and stuff Mm -hmm. Is that one day, like maybe I'll actually remember to do them? <laughs> Pretty if much. If we talk yeah. about if we talk about them enough over and over, maybe I'll actually remember it. Well, you know what? You have a really sound tactical mind. I just find that when you play the game, and I remember you telling me at the last tournament you went to, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I went to, to we played to the death." I'm like, "Did you do X, Y, and Z that we talked about in the last mission episode?" You're like, "Nope, like, nope." <laughs> <laughs> Even, uh. even the best players run into that sort of um, decision paralysis where they know the right thing to do. But when your mind is racing, the momentum is not in your favor, you forget, right? So, and that's where those moments where, you know, just sort of wrap this up as a general statement, when you are feeling stressed, I cannot st stress this enough, no pun intended, um, put your dice down, put your tape measure down, close your eyes, take two deep breaths. You will feel amazingly better. I know this sounds stupid. Deep breath in, deep breath out, deep breath in, deep breath out. But I, if you really want to win, 
You need to learn how to manage your stress, manage your psyche while you're playing and your mindset. And if you find it starting to fray and fracture, do it. You will notice a massive difference. But don't worry about it. Winning isn't important. But you're not listening to us because you want to win, <laughs> even though you're listening to tips and tricks for the mega win. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the, uh, the next section. Now on to all that is gold does not glitter. And we've got a question today from John Silver Fox, who has asked, would like your thoughts sometimes on what would make Numenor a viable army? Now, I don't think he's asking for an actual tournament army. I think he's asking more about like what proposed changes do you think would uh, make them a little bit better? You know, Give them a leg up. Yeah, yeah, give them some teeth. Give them some teeth outside of Alendil. They, they, they already did get a big lay, leg up in this edition, but oh, yeah. I mean, they still still a pretty uh, thin roster there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's one of the challenges about their 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 story, their backstory. There isn't a whole lot talking about like variety of regimented units or specialist units. No. No. So, uh, so you know, we, I sort of pondered this a bit for quite some time, and I was really delving into the lore of the Numenorians, um, and you know, just to get an idea of what I think would work, you know, because again, it's about trying to keep this in line with the lore. Um, and so, let's start with your army bonus. Okay, so the current army bonus is plus one courage. Ooh, whole crazy, crazy Ooh, stuff. Just like Gondor. So you're telling me the zenith of, of human evolution within Middle-earth has the same army bonus as Gondorians. Right. Okay. That's problematic. So so I think that you should uh, actually think that you should roll the current army bonus, which is plus one courage, directly into the models at no cost. I mean, they're courage three. This would bump them to courage four, which makes a whole lot of sense because, you know, the Numenorians that we're talking about are the faithful, right? They're not the king's people, right? Um, and so the faithful had a, an understanding and an acceptance of death, right? So like Numenorians before the time of like our Farazan, I think is the last king of Numenor, um, yeah. were actually quite accepting of the gift of Iluvatar, right? And had no issues when they were older, just lying down and letting death take them, right? They were very um, faithful. They had very strong understanding of what Iluvatar had offered them. And so it makes sense that they would have a hard time being afraid of much of anything if death does not fear them. Or they're not afraid of death, I should say. No, and like I think Courage 4 makes a lot of sense on them um, from a stat profile point of view, mm -hmm. simply because black Numenorians who are Numenorians, mm -hmm. they have Courage 4. Yeah. So, you know, I don't see why the regular Numenorians have Courage 3 and black Numenorians have Courage 4. So anyway, I, I agree with, with you that it should just be rolled into the uh, the thing. As uh, Going on still with the stats, like it's part of the lore that the Numenorians were like the mightiest of men. Mm -hmm. You know, they were like six and a half feet tall. Um, so I think that has been adequately sort of covered. Like we're talking about upgrading or bettering the Numenorian faction here in mm -hmm. this conversation. But like, I think that has already been done in this edition because they were increased to strength four. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that alone sort of covers that aspect of it. Cause like normal humans in the game are all strength three. Right. 
So these guys are the only ones really that are strength four. I don't know, maybe there's an exception there somewhere. Um, the other thing here, again, on the flip side though, black Numenorians. How come black Numenorians are only strength three? Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense because like their their base profile should probably be the same. Um, both should be strength four. Both should be courage four. Um, they sort of flipped it around. One's one's strength four. The other one's strength three. One's courage three. The other one's courage four. Um, kind of would make more sense, um, seeing as they're both um, from the same background, mm -hmm. that they would have a similar stat line. The other big thing about them uh, is the age. Like they, not they live a lot less than elves do, but they're mm -hmm. you know three hundred and fifty years plus. Let's say, um, kind of a hard thing to represent in the game. Yeah. Like in terms of rules, uh, I'm not sure there's anything they could do with that. Anyway, well, carry on with your. Uh, well, the uh, from what I've read, uh, Numenorians generally lived about 250 years on average, and then they they could sort of scooch up to the 350 mark. But the royal line, which was kind of like had more elvish blood in them, I guess, uh, regularly broke the 400 um, you know uh, age point. I know Elendil was I think 400 at the time of the the, the 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 final war in which he died. So just goes to show. Um, actually, the interesting thing is, I, I it makes kind of it kind of makes sense to me that the Black Numenorians would be strength three, only in so much that the Numenorean line by that point probably would have been polluted with the regular blood of men. Thus, as warriors, they would have been of less stature. You know what I mean? Nah, that didn't happen until much later. The Numenorians were the Numenorians um, until the fall happened. Well, no, Just I'm referring, some, well, I'm referring to the some black were bad and some were good, you know, because they sort of, their society split. True. Um, but we're not really talking about that. But. Well, I'm talking about the black Numenoreans as are currently presented in Mordor, right? Which is like a thousand, oh, two thousand years later, right? Yeah, so, yeah, it's possible, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, if you're going to do an apples to apples comparison of like the king's men versus the faithful, yeah, it should be a carbon copy. Modern yeah, because it's a good point, actually, because in the game, the Numenoreans are from second age mm -hmm. like it's a second age army yeah whereas the black numenorians in the game represent part of a third age army mm -hmm. so it's a good point actually yeah. very good point yeah um I, I really would like to see the whole you know you make an interesting point you talk about like how the the numenorians you know, we're having a bit of a side tangent here but the numenorians mm -hmm. Who were like six foot five, and even Elendil was a giant at eight feet. But even breaking seven feet was actually quite normal for them. And it was like and they were also supposed to be tall and lengthy, but also quite muscular. And it was like they're rep that's represented by like, um, you know, like having strength four. And I'm just like, honestly, it's kind of a sloppy representation, mostly because Moran and orcs are like what probably five five, six foot maybe, but they count mm -hmm. as being strength four. And I'm just like. That seems like a like they could do more because like someone who's like six five seven feet has a longer gait when they walk. You know what I mean? They can walk further and walk longer. So like I would almost say like if you want to count in their tall stature, maybe give them a, an increase in movement, like movement seven or movement eight. You know what I mean? Yeah, true, true. Right, could do that. 
So getting back to what I think they should replace the army bonus with, and here we go. I'm going crazy, throwing it off the wall immediately, okay? Outside the box. Outside the box. <clears throat> but this is very much in keeping with their theme, right? I, go, I would go with an interesting dual special role that their heroes can use sort of at the start of the priority phase. Get um, ready, too. I'm going to just tear all this to shreds when you're done. Perfect. Go Sorry. for it, though. I should say, not the start of the priority phase, start the combat phase. Okay, because I realized I caught myself there. Um, so I would say, like, a, an enemy or a, an army leader may declare which formation his army is in at the start of the combat phase. All models within six inches of the leader of the leader gain this benefit. Formation. Formation. I like it. That's right. There's two formations that I read about um, that were integral to Numenorean uh, battle tactics, um, and one of which is the Thangal. And one of which is the Dirnath. Okay, I'm probably massacring these names. Um, but essentially, one is highlighted as being like this impenetrable shield wall. And the other, which is focused on overwhelming their adversaries in this kind of like wedge formation. And <clears throat> from a rules perspective, I've slightly adapted this to make it actually work kind of um, mm -hmm. in the game. And essentially, I would say Thangal, which is the unbreakable defense formation. And that's models who have not charged this turn do not fall back if they lose combat. So it's already a rule that exists. It exists for more, uh, for Gondor, um, but it allows your army leader to sort of who's you know in the center of your battle line to sort of emit this six-inch radius that then says nobody falls back this turn, right? So if if we've lost priority and the enemy's mm -hmm. charged us, we're using this ability. Uh, and then the second one is uh, Dirnath, which is sort of like this unstoppable assault formation. And that's models who have charged this turn gain the knock to the ground special rule, but only against infantry. And this gives them some punch they had because, again, my suggestions on um, Numenor as an army is not to include cavalry. I don't think Yeah, they really don't fits. have any. Like yeah. their heroes can take mounts right now, but, exactly. uh, but that's it. They don't actually have a cavalry warrior. Right. Um, and uh, so let me let me give you some feedback. Uh oh, here we um, go. Yeah, love the idea of having like two different formations available. So you mm -hmm. could you could say I'm going to use the defensive one this turn. I'm going to use the offensive one. I love that idea. Mm -hmm. Cool idea. Um, I like the unbreakable defense formation. Mm -hmm. I think I think that is a cool uh, thing. We already we already see some. Uh, I think there's a hero or two in the game that have that ability. I forget what he is. His name, the Ministerial guy. In glory. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of it's not unprecedented in in the mm -hmm. game. Um, so that's cool. The unstoppable assault formation knocked to the ground. That seems far too strong to me. Um, mm -hmm. They already like they already get strength four, which I personally think is enough for them. Mm -hmm. um, knock to the ground is so super strong; mm -hmm. um, it just seems a little bit op. Mm -hmm. um, but because they are known for their size, mm -hmm. I think something like this, or like maybe even some kind of a watered down barge, would be appropriate for them. Mm -hmm. Maybe even if you had the choice of knock to the ground or attacking if you won the dual roll, mm -hmm. but not both like cavalry can do. Like cavalry can knock to the ground and also strike blows, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that might be a way to make it less OP is that you can choose to either strike blows or knock to the ground. Mm -hmm. 
pick one or the other. Mm. Um, so that's possibility. Um, or another idea would be to have them increase their pushback from one inch to two inch. I was thinking that. So, so it represents the massive impact of their unstoppable assault. Um, and they would still get to strike with that. Mm -hmm. And that could seriously disrupt like enemy formations. Mm -hmm. So just some thoughts on, on that. I like the first one. The other the second one, I think knocked to the ground by itself is just maybe a little bit too much. I hear you. Um, I hear you. Um, the one of the reasons why I, I, I went with knock to the ground initially was because um, I remember reading about Isildur's um, sort of like lamentations of the Battle of Gladden Fields, right? And they talked about how he wished he had open ground because he could use the Dirnaith and he would like mow through the orcs like, like chaff um, blowing mm -hmm. in, the, in the wind. Um, and it almost sounded like this just massive wedge that just mows through something, almost as if it was a cavalry charge, right? Yeah. And like that, that kind of like idea would be like, it would just be really cool to see this, like, again, this very long limbed, very tall, very powerful um, wall of men just literally just pushed with such ferocity that they could knock something down. Now, they don't get the extra attack, and it only works against infantry, so it's very specialized, right? Like, it wouldn't work against monsters, it wouldn't work against mounted horses, um, and they would still only get, you know, two attacks becomes four. So, effectively, your two Numenorean warriors would count as a single strength four cav, right? Right, so, so you essentially, like, a normal, let's say, I don't know, um... Well, it's slightly better, but you know what I mean. Um, it gives them slightly more punch, but it really is dependent upon the heroic, you know, move off, right? And mm -hmm. Numenor isn't known to have a whole lot of might, right? Like if you're investing in a Lendil, if you're if yeah. you're investing in a Sildur, you generally one or the other. You don't have a whole mm -hmm. lot of might left for just captains calling heroic moves. So pulling off the knock to the ground assault formation, you're not doing it that often, right? No. That's true. Um, and speaking of that, why don't we move on to talk about some some heroes? Sure, let's do it. Um, so obviously, include Anarion, the as yep. an alternative hero of Valor, right? Um, as for what his his attributes would be, I really have no idea because he's not mentioned at all, other than he took a stone to the no. face <laughs> at the Battle of Daggerlad and just yeah. died. So, you know, you could, for flavor's sake, if he shot with a siege weapon, he just dies. Um, mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I, I think adding an area, which they've already hinted at, they will. Um, so he was, he died before the Battle of Five Armies, like in a preceding battle, correct? I think it was the Battle of Daggerlad, which was the siege of the Black Gate, before there was the actual amassing yeah. of, so of it was Sauron. part of the same campaign, but yeah, yeah. prior to... Um, it is kind of weird that Games Workshop has completely ignored Anarion mm -hmm. um, up until now. Because he was a really important part of the lore, actually. I mean, sure, he wasn't killed by Sauron, and no. he didn't fail to destroy the ring like his brother. Um, but he was co-ruler of Gondor along with Isildur. Mm -hmm. And it was Anarion's son who became king 
after both of the brothers were killed. So the line of kings of Gondor are from his bloodline. Yeah, that's right. And yet he's like not even in the game at all, which is kind of odd. But mm -hmm. I guess because there's not a lot written about him. Um, well, yeah, it's like they would have to take a stab in the dark as to what they'd want to make him. Right. And I mean, you yeah. could carbon copy him to Isildur and you just have to give him a special rule that sort of differentiates him from Isildur. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, I think, you know, because, you know, Numenor is all about the archers. And I think they need a Hero of Fortitude archer character that gives some kind of bonus to shooting, whether that's reroll ones to shoot or, you know, reroll ones to hit or reroll ones to wound, something like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or maybe. I'm not so sure that Numenorian is all about the archery, but I haven't honestly thoroughly read everything about them but i don't like i know we're going to get into talking about their hollow steel bow and yada yada mm -hmm. but other than that like <laughs> I, I don't I, I haven't read a lot saying like hey these guys are all about the archery but anyway i digress okay um i've read stuff though they're 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 big into their shooting i'll say that and they've been able to blanket okay. whole swaths of battlefields and black fletched arrows so uh, it, so it gives the impression that, you know, if you're an army that has no cavalry, you better have some yeah. shooting to help you out. I mean, I mean, it's not uncommon, though. They're an mm -hmm. infantry army. So yeah. it, it, like it goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I, anyway, whatever. Um, I would throw in for this army, I would throw in a drummer as a minor hero. I mean, it seems mm -hmm. a bit odd, but this is an army. This is an infantry army, as you said. It is the infantry army. Like, they have no cav. They have no mention of cav. Um, they have no mobility. They are an extremely well-drilled and precisioned army and disciplined army on the battlefield. And that, to me, kind of screams they are all about that infantry tactics and they're exceptionally good at it. And most medieval... <clears throat> Most sort of like well-drilled, well-precisioned armies have some kind of drummer or some kind of motive, something to motivate them to push them onwards. Yeah, it's like, well, first of all, like I think I think it's appropriate um, in the sense that it gives them some some mobility. The, and like they don't have cavalry. We mm -hmm. mentioned that before. And it's a funny thing because, I mean, you introduce this thing into the game, which is... It has a historical precedent, the drum, okay? Mm -hmm. It makes makes people move faster. Okay, fine. So the question you have to ask yourself, okay, well, if this exists, then what armies are you going to choose that do not have access to this? Who has not figured out <laughs> the drum, you know? Uh, and this would not be one of the armies that would not have figured it out. They certainly would have figured it out. Mm -hmm. Um I, I don't know like it's one of those things that once once you introduce this in the game shouldn't everybody have access to it same thing with a war horn well I, you know, I, I yet some armies don't have it it's uh, just it's odd it's very odd and for some reason the drum is an evil only thing currently right You've yeah and I know why they do it it's it's because like they don't want everything to be same-ish in the game like you know every army is the same so some armies have one thing and don't have another and like I get that but it's at the same time I, I just find it kind of unusual well to me the thing I, I find very odd is that the more disciplined you are the more likely you would have a drum because everyone moved in lockstep with the drum beat yeah you wouldn't have a drum if you're not a disciplined 
army, yeah. right? Like it just doesn't make any sense. So giving it to evil and being like, yeah, evil has a drum. I'm like, yeah, but they're so ramshackled and didn't ill-discipline. Ill yeah. Why would they have a drum? <laughs> you know, the more the more I think about it, the more I actually like your idea of increasing the movement of the Numenorians. Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, it's like, okay, you can have a marauder scout for Urukai move eight inches. Right? Mm -hmm. Don't you think like the six and a half foot tall guy would just like run right past one of those guys on the battlefield? <laughs> yeah. You know. So I totally so I think e either of those would be a good a drummer or increase increase movement. Yeah, uh, and you know what you could do, and here's a great one: you could choose a Narion and say maybe that's a special rule. Like when a Narion's on the in the army, you can pay yeah. an extra point, and all of a sudden you can increase the movement speed of your Numenorean warriors by two inches right that's right I yeah know. and he's he, the model comes with running shoes and gym shorts <laughs> there you go <laughs> word of the day cheekiness yeah uh so moving on to cavalry uh and i'm just flat out gonna say no there's no reason why you have a cavalry option for numenor i yeah. mean yes yeah, and everyone points to the fact that they love breeding horses right and that's, it's in the lore. It's well established. They love breeding horses. In fact, they are, they were so um, in tune with their horses that, that some of the most strongest bonds, you could like call your horse telepathically. Literally, you could just think of your horse and your horse will come to you. And that was what was sort of screamed about in the lore of Numenor. Mm -hmm. But nowhere have they ever talked about horses were being used for war. Okay? Not yeah. once. Okay? Um, so what I would say is like if someone is like, you know, gung-ho about horses and cavalry and Numenor, I would almost take it, and I wouldn't do this, but it's just saying if you would, I would almost take it as almost like an outrider. You know what I mean? Like yeah. an, like Because you got to admit, like a full infantry army that's heavily disciplined would absolutely have outriders riding around them to make sure they know where the enemy is at all times. Well, and, they did talk in some of the stuff I read about, like of, you know, messengers and, mm -hmm. and such like that being mounted, but not, you know, not like a cavalry arm to the, yeah. the army. You could, you could have an outrider similar to the Rohan outrider, um, tune, tune back or tone down the armor component, probably making defense four. Um, but you could give them that sort of board-wide standfast that the, the Numenorean or the Rohan Outrider has. Maybe mm -hmm. even throw a bow on them. Uh, and you could have that kind of element and maybe even say, like, look, this is a light horse, so maybe it doesn't get plus one attack yeah. or knocked to the ground. Like, the idea being you would rein it in and you wouldn't allow it to be that cav option that everyone looks at, the heavy cav option. You could make it as more of that sort of light skirmishing, go grab the, the outflanking objectives kind of thing. Yeah, like essentially Numenor is a race of mariners. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all about the ships. Yeah. Um, and and their, their like influence on Middle Earth it was just all along the coast, mm -hmm. really, um, until their island exploded. Pretty much. Um, so... Yeah, it to me when I think of it, like, and, and I try to come up with a historical preference, it, it would be like you know trying to say, oh well, you know the Vikings, you know they're renowned for their cavalry tactics. And it's like what? No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's the same kind of thing to me. Like yeah. that—that's kind of the the way I look at it, anyway. Yeah, and I mean, like, you ever tried putting a horse on a boat? It doesn't go well. <laughs> especially a hundred of them it doesn't go well 
Um, so yeah, I would really shy away from the Cav in terms of making this army better. Um, mm -hmm. But I could see if they wanted to do that, some sort of like lower armored outrider. You know what I mean? Fair enough. I think that would be good game-wise, too, because mm -hmm. it would give them a little objective-grabbing board control shenanigans. Exactly. Okay. Now, we're getting into the, the, the meat and potatoes here. Like, the real, the, the humdinger that everyone talks about. Mm -hmm. The bows. Okay. I spent the most amount of time on this because, honestly, I wanted to know, is, is, is this, could this really be a real thing in, like, real life? Can you have a hollowed steel bow that actually does something in real life? Uh, and firing essentially a five to six foot long arrow. Is that a thing? Mm -hmm. I looked it up and actually it is a thing. It, it's legitimately a thing. Is it yeah. like optimal? Like is it like your 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 U, um, Y E W U bow um, that's firing a matched arrow? Probably not. But these are Numenorians who stand six and a half to seven feet tall with massive yeah, arms. Yeah, I was going to say if you're if you're holding a steel bow, even if it's hollow, you probably have to be six and a half feet <laughs> tall and that strong in order to to wield it. Agreed, hundred percent. So I would say, you know, based on like a lot of the wording they talk about, you know, like, um, you know, we joke, but like, you know, like in the movie Three Hundred, where they're like, their arrows will, our arrows will blot out the sun, and then the yeah. Spartan response is, "Well, them all fight in the shade." Well, that's kind of how the Numenorians did. They they fired like massive like flocks of black fletched arrows that were the length and size of elves, uh, and to to kill their enemy essentially, and so. What I would do is I would sort of transform this bow into like a two-point upgrade, okay? Mm -hmm. And there's two options at play here. Uh, the easy way out is just to do a 24-inch strength three bow, right? Pretty standard, plays on the fear, you know, the thing. Elf bow or long bow? Pretty much, yeah. Like, um, very simple stuff here. Yeah. But option two is if you really want to play on the Numenorean strength, like the real, like the fact that they're taller and stronger than normal men, I would go with an 18-inch strength four great bow. Okay, um, because we talked about the hollowed steel bow, we talked about the super long arrow, we talked about their ability to fire these things, um, <laughs> and so I would say like this is the one army where you could do that. Which there's no, there's so many precedent for strength four crossbows, so it's not game crippling. But from a balance perspective, I would tone it to 18 inches. Giving them a 24-inch strength forward great bow would be insane. Because you could move three inches and keep backing mm -hmm. up. You know what I mean? So the damage there is too much. And I would also keep the bow limit at 33%. They are not yeah. known as an army that's like massive swaths of like, like they're an archery army. They're not known as that. They're just known as having really awesome bows. And so... Uh, between the 18 inches uh, strength for a great bow and the 33 inch uh, bow limit and the expensive characters I think this gives them a lot of punch um, but doesn't hinder them too much for me I'm going to keep it simple mm. I, I would just give them the elf bow at 33% and I'd keep their shoot at 4 plus it's a big upgrade mm. um, and if you're if you're if you're taking a serious look, like will Games Workshop actually ever do this? Yeah. Um, you know, they probably won't. But you know, if they were to do that, you, to me, your your upgrade is like a two-step upgrade, mm. whereas like just giving them an, an elf bow would be a one-step upgrade. And plus, it's kind of in the lore. You know, there were initially, anyways, mm -hmm. um, good good friends and allies with with the elves. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, they they use their bow technology let's say yeah yeah 
I can see that. I feel like it would be the lazy man's way out of it because it's like, what do you do for, for archery, right? It's either like a strength mm-hmm. two bow or it's a strength two bow with some kind of reroll like poison or uh, rerolls to wound from some character or it's a strength three bow. But I'm like, yeah. you have a great bow that exists as an option in the warrior section of the rulebook, yeah. but only one person in the entire game has it, Bard the Bowman. Yeah. <laughs> really? He's the only one who's figured out how to use a great bow. Yeah, like what you could do actually is um, give, um, what's his name again? Anarion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anarion. You could give him maybe the great bow. Yeah, you could do that. If you're going to, you were talking earlier about making him uh, like a an archery guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could absolutely do that. So there, that's an option. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still shooting for my great bows. Let's go for the great bows. I don't even play the army. I probably never will. But I'd <laughs> if, if we're bows. gonna go great bow, I would just go with the great bow rather than like the um, the dwarf bow on steroids. Zero, eighteen inch <laughs> strength oh, you, four. You want to give them twenty four inch strength four great bows? Okay. I, I don't. I I wouldn't do that. But if you were gonna go that way, I would just say, hey, we got a great bow in the game already. It's range twenty four. There it is. It's true. Down. Now the question is, would you make it two points or three points? Uh, three. Really? Even though crossbows are two? Yeah. Great bow is better than a crossbow. It's true. You can move and shoot. Big yeah. difference. Okay. Well, I, I'm shooting for great bows then. If it has to be a three-point upgrade, hmm? <laughs> I'm going for it. I, I, it's going to give them the punch, you know? Um, and again, it keeps that army small. But, you know, like if you invest more in your infantry than you do in your heroes, then you got it gives you an alternative, right? All right. Uh, is, is that the end of your notes, or do you have one I got more thing? one more. Infantry. Okay. No-brainer. I would give them the shield wall special rule. Shocker alert. Shield wall. Shocker alert. <laughs> they are the Shocker. people that literally created the concept of shield wall in Middle-earth. <laughs> like, I'm pretty certain the Gondorians learned it from the Numenorians. So, yeah. to not have them have a shield wall kind of seems silly. Yeah, and, you know, it's... They only have defense five yeah. with a shield, so um, not necessarily going to be too OP. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, you do also have this defensive formation thing going on, so mm-hmm. you could potentially be combining shielding with your defensive formation, mm-hmm. which makes shielding a hell of a lot better. Oh, because yeah. one of the ways you lose your shielding or your shield wall bonus is by the pushback mm-hmm. right and that would prevent you from losing it mm-hmm. so it it does actually it is better than the normal shield wall if you are also in, incorporating your your formation but, i forget what you called it before uh thangel or thangel uh but remember if you're going with thangel you're not going with your which is running people over so yeah yeah so I, I think the shield wall rule fits here whether you want to increase their point cost by one or not it's that's that's a different story but um, I think the shield Who's wall... Who's going to worry about... You know, nobody's going to worry about an assault formation, man. You're just going to go into shield wall with your defensive formation and fire great bows at your opponent all game long. <laughs> that's it right there. There You're you done. go. There you go. That's it. You set up the bunker and you like start firing your artillery out at them. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of my thing. Um, do you have any last thoughts here other than to say you're crazy? 
<laughs> other than to say you're crazy. No, um, other than the fact that I actually, um, I like I have read the Silmarillion where they talk about some of this stuff, um, but I, like my memory is terrible, so I can't remember a lot. So I, d I did watch a whole bunch of videos on um, YouTube mm -hmm. about the Second Age and the Numenorians, and it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have, I've read some of this stuff before, um, but their story... I find like I didn't realize how involved it was, um, so I really enjoyed uh, learning about that. Mm -hmm. I'd really recommend. Um, I, I I watch one of the YouTube channels I watch quite a bit is Nerd of the Rings. Gonna say. Um, yeah, but there's lots of them out there mm -hmm. right now. It's it's become a a big thing to uh, a big popular topic for new YouTube channels is. Mm -hmm. Tolkien stuff oh, and yeah. why because they just get a crap load of views all of them there's so many that have like just tons of views and I was like oh my god they're uh, pretty much all producing the same content literally yeah. like it's like I'm gonna talk about Numenorians well no I'm gonna talk about Numenorians <laughs> yeah. I'm like there's yeah, just like I one looked up new, Numenorians I think I watched like six different videos by six different YouTube channels on Numenorians in the second age <laughs> yeah yeah, and you know, like the, the Numenorians, um, you read about them. It's such a their history is so cool, um, and I feel like the army really doesn't live up to the lore, mm -hmm. and like not in the slightest. They just seem like a a slightly like a, a like a like a poor man's upgrade over Gondor. Right, like the infantry is better. Don't get me wrong, but like yeah. a Gondor, uh, an equally skilled, like a a Gondor army uh, equally pointed against a Numenorean army, generally will win. Right, like if you just find a way to dehorse Elendil, you can. Well, they have they have more tools, right? They have siege yeah. weapons. They've got all kinds of stuff that Numenor doesn't have. Like the Numenor models we see in the game are reflective of what we saw in the movie, and that's it. Yeah. But you, um, you could have done so much know. more with the models, like the, with the points, right? I mean, like yeah. the rules. And it's just like, oh, yeah. Like, like yeah. a lot of the stuff I'm suggesting here really doesn't require like a massive new army sculpts or new uh, models. No. Um, just be more inventive with sort of the army bonuses. And like, I felt like the plus one courage army bonus for Numenor was very much a cop out. It was like, wh what do we give them? And it was just like, eh, plus one courage. Yeah. You know. Having said that, you know, give them another couple of units because yeah, you know, it's 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 got to be all about fleshing out the the armies at, at this point in mm -hmm. the, the history of the game. You know, Dale uh, Knights of Dale, typical example of what we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. um, throw in a new unit for an army that has almost nothing. Well, it, like Numenor is is one of the armies that has almost nothing in mm -hmm. terms of selection. <laughs> give them another unit or two. You know, yeah, when I, you do come around to you know, taking a second look at them. Yeah, and I mean, you know what you could do? Um, we could, you could switch back your, uh, uh, the, 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 the Dear Nath's uh, army bonus, right? And give it, instead of uh, the knock to the ground, um, give it the, you can push your enemy back two inches instead of one, which is amazing mm -hmm. for objective-based games. Mm -hmm. um, and then you could put some sort of specialist unit in that's called like uh, the line breaker unit. Right, and these are gentlemen. These are these are Numenorians who are actually much taller than the average guy. They're much burlier, much more built. Mm -hmm. um, the shock troopers. The shock troopers. That's right. And maybe make them defense sick because you're going to give them the plate armor, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you could say, you know, um, in the Dirnaith formation, they get knocked to the ground. 
Yeah. As a special rule, in addition to like knocking someone back two inches, right? And so all of a sudden, you can play with that and say, like, instead of this army bonus, they get this. And you could put in the same uh, models, <laughs> put in a couple of new units, and it, all of a sudden, it radically changes how they act. And, and you could keep the, the knock to the ground. But you also put in a rule that doesn't allow people to just spam them and take a whole army of those guys, like, you know, like Knights what of we see. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm going to take an entire army consisting of nothing but fountain court guard. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, and unfortunately, that exists, you know. And even though the fountain court guard were, like, a fraction of the ministerial of the army force. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would like to see some kind of, and this is a bit of a, a massive tangent, but I'd like to see in the next edition of uh, the MESPG, they come out with some kind of, like, special you know basic special units and like cap yeah. it like like come on like it would be good um I, i'm just not sure that the game that the typical army in the game has enough variety in unit choice um like i've looked at that before with the game and it it, it would definitely tend to make a lot of the armies look exactly the same all yeah. the time yeah that is the one of the challenges Whereas, yeah like you already you already see that with a lot of armies just because they have almost no choice mm -hmm. in what they can take if you implemented a rule like that like with with say Minas Tirith or Mordor or whatever mm -hmm. armies that have like some of the biggest rosters then all of a sudden they become again they all become very same-ish looking mm -hmm. and it's like eh, I like the idea of it um, but would it actually work? I'm not sure it would with this game. And the other challenge is, if you were to limit specialist units, you might inevitably um, or inadvertently kill certain armies from being able to be playable, right? Like if you said yeah. you can only take six Black Numenorians in a Mordor army, well, you just killed one of their entire control builds um, mm -hmm. because of that. And it's like, well, was that your intended intended target? And the answer being verily no. But yeah, it would just be nice if people just stopped like spamming things. I don't know, but like, it hey, does it's all you competitive guys, man. Yeah, that's true. I'm going to be building a Give 16 a rank. It's well, being a building a mortar army that's got 16 black Numenorians. So I mean, hey, because <laughs> regular orcs suck. Sorry, they do. Regular orcs are awesome. Depending, anyway. you have to build a list for it. But anyways, we yeah. I digress. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. Let's move on. We've answered this question. We've, there we've and back it. again. There and back again. And then there and back again a second time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back with my favorite segment, What Have I Got in My Pocket?, the show where we ask each other a question, which almost certainly involves Don asking me a quote question that I fail at getting, and I have to answer it on the spot. I've attempted to counter with the special rules questions, but Don has, for some reason, figured out how to answer those. So I'm at a disadvantage. Our score currently is at one to zero. Don is at one and I'm at zero. So Don, what's your question for me That's today? Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, question. first off, first off, I've asked you two questions. You've only asked me one. 
That's true. Correct? That is yeah, true. So yes, I'm one for one. You are 0 for 2 and 0 out of a possible 6 points. So what I'm going to do going Smithers. forward is I'm going to introduce a new bit, a new bonus. Okay? Oh, God. If you get a question correct, I will ask you a bonus question. And it won't be a quote. It's just a random question about Lord of the Rings movie, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay? And the bonus question will be worth an additional one point. So this is me trying to tempt you to get something other than a hard. So, for example, if you got an easy question right, you get one point. Uh-huh. And then if you got the bonus question right, you get a further one point. So you'd get two points, you know, because okay. easy is worth one, medium is worth two, and hard is worth three. Uh -huh. So having said that, okay, you only get the bonus question if it's easy. No, I'll give it to you even if you get the heart. You know, what the hell? Okay. okay. Oh, thank you. Well, fine. What? Then I... No, I you know ask. what? No, no, no. We can't give it to you if you go for the hard because then you'll just keep going for the hard. Okay. Yeah. So you only you only get the bonus if you get the easier medium. Oh God! Fine. So I'll what do you want? The medium. I'll go with the medium question. You're going I'll for the medium. medium. I'll go with the medium. Okay. There'll be a slight pause while I try to find the quote because <laughs> I had everything else ready except for the medium. <laughs> Good. Oh Good. my gosh. All right. Here it is. Uh -huh. Then there is a lady in the golden wood, as the old tales tell, he said. Few escape her nets, they say. These are strange days. Mm. Is that Let me know if you need me to read it again. Is that Gimli? Then there is a lady in the golden wood, as the old tales tell, he said. Few escape her nets, they say. These are strange days. Oh, wait. There is a lady in the golden wood. Well, it's the golden wood, so it's Lothlorium. They're talking about Galadriel. Um, then, Definitely. Uh, then I, I'm going to have to go with Gimli. It's probably wrong, but I'll go with Gimli. You are correct. It is wrong. It is... <laughs> It is Aomer. Oh. Speaking actually with Gimli. Oh. Okay. So there you go. Sorry. No luck. No bonus okay. question for you. Oh, I don't get a bonus question? Oh, that's right. No, you didn't okay, get it right. Get it right. All righty. So I'm zero for three and zero points. Okay. <laughs> Good try, though. You were close. I mean, it was in a conversation with the guy that you guessed. So. Yeah. yeah there you go. So Reasonably close. I would say that you probably have an easier time answering my question, my my answers, my, my questions than I do yours. So I'm just saying, you know. Sure, if you say so. <laughs> All right. So what do you want? Some easy, medium, or, or hard? Okay. Well, in the spirit of the game, I will also guess for or go for a medium question. Medium. Okay. Knowing so mine, that I will probably get it wrong. It's, it's a special rule that's okay. unique. Okay, so I'm already cutting out a whole bunch of special rules. Yeah. And you have to name the person, and you also have to name what the special rule is. Okay? Okay. So, the special rule is broken mind. Broken mind. Hmm. Mm. Broken mind. Okay, so... 
I'm thinking of some names of some guys. I'm thinking these aren't my answers. I'm just talking out mm -hmm. loud, but I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking maybe Grima. I'm thinking maybe Denethor. Uh, who else has a broken mind? Hmm. Those are the only ones that I can think of. I don't think that's Grima. So I'm going to guess that it's Denethor. That's my guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what is, is right? the special rule? Well, tell me if I'm right, if it's Denethor or not. Because if it's not, then I'm not going to be able to guess so what you, it so is. So what'd you guess? What'd you, who'd, who'd you guess? Denethor. Uh, it is Denethor. It is Denethor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so what is the rule? Broken mind. Mm -hmm. mm. Never played with the guy. Mm -hmm. I think he has some kind of rule where under some kind of a condition, possibly it's a courage check or something, the other player gets to control him for a turn or something like that. Um, it's the only thing I know about his profile other than, you know... Um, what is it now? You no, that's I'm thinking of a different rule from here in the tall. That doesn't that doesn't apply here. So that's going to be my answer. Generally, it's like it's a rule that somehow allows the opponent to control the model for a turn if you mm -hmm. fail a check of some kind or something like that. That's as close as I can come. Well, in the spirit of being a dink um, and being in the jank, I'll say you're part right, but I won't give you the point. Okay. So, so he has to make a courage check um, at the uh, top of his turn, uh, after pri before priority's rule, actually. Uh, if the test is passed, all is fine. If the test is failed, Denethor is controlled by the opposing player until the end phase of that turn. While under the control of the opposing player, friendly models cannot target Denethor with shooting attacks or magic powers. That can cause damage and may not make strikes if they beat him in a fight. So that part, you were right. Mm-hmm. But the other part of the special rule is if Boromir is part of the same army as Denethor, then Denethor will automatically pass these tests so long as Boromir is alive. And if Boromir dies, then Denethor automatically fails the next test. So Okay, so it's kind of got three parts to it, and I only yeah. got one part. I got the other player gets to control him. I didn't get the part where you can't shoot at him or attack him or the part yeah, about Boromir. So you got, okay. you, got the, you got the gist enough for someone to play against Denethor, but the semantics yeah. of the rule, you... You didn't get, but that's okay. That is, a, that, is a that is a very involved rule. It is. It is a very involved rule. Yeah. Oh well, I was I was close anyway. You were you were. I would almost have given you a half point, but as you didn't want to give me a half point uh, for uh, guessing both one, uh, who is the the quote was about, as well as uh, well. Well, know. mine isn't as hard to get. It's like name the person who said this. So it's like, is this the person? No. So therefore, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you're, okay, okay, okay. It's the competitiveness out of me is coming out of me as the fact that I have yet to get a freaking quote right. <laughs> oh, All right. Good times. Oh, my God. Okay, so we're still, uh, we didn't get any points there. Okay. Yeah, I have a feeling my, everyone will be like, that's ridiculous. You should have given it to him. But my response is no. I'm not giving it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Shut me down cold. Okay. That's right. Boom. Done. That's how it's going to be. Right. I get it. That's how it's going to be. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, is that the end of the episode? I think so. Yeah. 
Do you have any final thoughts or thank yous or parting wishes? Well, um, I know. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Um, you know, and who continues to listen, even those that may not play the game, as I've heard from a couple of people who don't play the game but they still listen. You know, I do appreciate that. So does Don. Um, yeah, that's we cool. Appreciate the, we appreciate the fact that you enjoy our friendly banter, and um, yeah, that's just amazing for me. Um, and in terms of sort of next steps, we will probably, our next episode will probably be on the FAQ that just came out. Mm-hmm. So, well, because uh, since we've started this episode, because I think, what was this, like a week and a half, two weeks ago, yeah. we recorded the first half, and in mm-hmm. that time, the FAQ has come out, so... Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there, and you know, there's there's also like we could do a we could do a uh, let's talk about on the FAQ, and we've mm-hmm. also been waiting for the FAQ for yes. to do the Vanquishers episode that we promised as well, because you know we thought there's no point in putting it out before the FAQ because it's almost certainly going to be FAQ'd, and mm-hmm. of course it was, and yeah, Drew, you called it almost to the nose on what. At least a few of the FA, or a few of the uh, changes were, but let's not go into that now. We'll save that yeah. for the vanquishers. We, uh. we didn't want to end up like Harry Parkhill from the Entmoot releasing a podcast or a YouTube I video saw about that. how yeah, to beat Yeah, that them. was unfortunate. Oh, yeah, devastation, yeah. devastation. Unfor- unfortunate timing. Yeah, I'm still gonna watch <laughs> that. I, have, I haven't watched it yet, but it's definitely on my list of of things to watch for sure because this stuff is always very good. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So, how about you? Any final uh, thoughts? Yeah, one final thought. Have you started writing the next part of Oathbound, our narrative story, yet? What's the status uh, on that? Where are you? Oh, my God. You're like a manager asking the Give status us an on update. the next report. Uh, the status of the next report is I haven't done anything with it. So um, it's definitely <laughs> okay. um, something that's going to have to be worked on eventually. Um, it's unfortunately low priority for me. I hate to say it. Um, but it is. we haven't forgot. Um, or I say I haven't forgot Oathbound mm-hmm. um, and where we go next with the story will be interesting to see but uh, it yeah. is still coming it is still in the works so um, we are sketching out how we want to release it in the sense that it, we don't want it to impact our release schedule um, and we want to be able to still deliver some great content while at the same time delivering the awesomeness of Oathbound <laughs> the awesomeness of yeah because garther's in the background there he's limbering up recovering from his injuries he's eager to get going again you know just that is so, true just I, so I, you don't know. E- I don't even remember my my character's name that's how bad it is <laughs> it's elioneth man come on there we go elioneth wow i'm not even a true yeah. oath bounder apparently uh yeah so elioneth and garther will make a reappearance um I hope by end of February, but I'm not holding my breath on that. At some point um, later this year, let's just say yes, that. At some point this year, Eliona and Garth will make a, a reappearance. <laughs> well, I look forward to reading the next installment so that I can think up some new stuff as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, well, thanks again, everybody, for listening to another episode of North of the Shire, and we will see you again next time.